When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As her brother Aegon struck out towards Harrenhal and her sister Rhaeny struck out towards the Stormlands, Queen Visenya departed for the Vale on Vagar. It was ruled by Queen Regent Shara Arryn, whose son King Ronal was not yet of age. She had tried unsuccessfully to become Aegon's third wife, and now she prepared for war. Banners were called, defenses mounted, and allies outside of Westeros were sought and secured. In many ways, the Vale is the most difficult kingdom to invade. The Bloody Gate saw the defeat of several Ironborn invasions in the time of King Halleck Hor, not to mention countless others in the eons prior, which is why the Targaryens didn't send an army at all. The invasion would begin with air and sea power. With Visenya and Vagar came the new royal fleet, mostly consisting of the ships of House Velaryon, led by the Lord of Driftmark and Master of Ships, Daemon Velaryon. Visenya and Vagar and the Velaryons invade the Vale. It's Valar Reredus. Ha. All that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. Hello and welcome to this most V-est of episodes. More V's in this episode than you can get a handle on. We like to bring you as many V's as possible. And today we're very successful at that. Also... It's a very Sean day, because we have Sean right beside us, me and Ashea, slightly farther away. <laughs> it's great to have you here in the studio again, Sean, just like old times. Yeah, it's cool. I was just observing before we started this that I think the number of remote streams has outnumbered the amount of uh, in-person streams at this point. But. That's true, yeah. We, we're, we're not quite sure what the count is, but I think you're probably right. We've probably done more remote than 10 together, but we'll, we'll add one more to the together column here. We should have included a lot of fives in this episode, too, to match up with the Vs. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. <laughs> this episode is not Roman. How often do you think about the Roman Empire, Sean? Not every day, but I think <laughs> once a week or so, you know, like more often than you might think. But to be fair, I think about a lot of things. Yeah. I probably think about American history <laughs> once a day. So. That question's been making the rounds, hasn't it? Every, almost every, 3 what p.m. What's that? Sorry. How many times a day do I think of the Roman Empire? Five. V. V <laughs> <Yeah>, times. Yeah. <laughs> Our live streams are almost every Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern on YouTube. Afterwards, you can still catch the live stream on YouTube as a recording. You can also catch the po- edited podcast version, uh, both available in video and audio-only forms on Spotify and audio-only forms everywhere else. Available. Available, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) I did put the V in caps here in our document. It's also ad-free on Patreon if you choose to listen there. Also, a shout-out to our good friend, Good Queen Alley, a.k.a. Nina, goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. Interesting question that relates to the conquest that she got. What would have happened if Aegon had died before the completion of the conquest, before having a child, or... You know, it, one of the scenarios floated is if it had been Aegon who died in Dorne instead of Rhaenys, what would that have done? Spoiler. <laughs> Spoiler! <laughs> yes, I'm sure y'all didn't know that, so my bad for ruining the surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Our trivia question for today, 
there are two castles in Westeros with the same name. Actually, there might be more, but I'm I only know of this one duplication. What is that name? I'll tell you at the end, unless you know already, in which case you don't need to be told. But I'll say it at the end regardless. Okay, let's talk about the campaign, the Targaryen side. Damon Valarian, more on him in our House Valarian episode, so we'll keep this part a little bit briefer than the fuller explanation there. Like Oris, Damon was also family. And like Oris Baratheon, the exact nature of the family connection is unknown. We don't know who Oris's mother was. We talked about it a bit, but we have no confirmed answers. It's not even 100% certain that he was Lord Aerian's bastard at all, though. Personally, I accept that as canon, but there's a chance it's not true. And the Targaryen sibling's mother was Valena Valarian. Damon had grown children. So we can guess he was at least in his 40s. He could have been older than that, maybe his 50s. And if he was in his 50s or, or thereabouts, then he might have been Valena's brother, which means he would be the uncle of Aegon and, and Visenya and Rhaenys. Now, it might have been said if he was their uncle. So perhaps that's not the case. Otherwise, I would guess... He's the nephew of her. Uh, he's her nephew rather than her sister. Or brother, rather. Because it's a safer guess that Lord Arian married the daughter of the Lord of Driftmark rather than a cousin. And Damon was very likely the son of the Lord of Driftmark since he inherited, became Lord. So, you know, usually the, the main branch is where the, these marriages occur to the royals. But there's obviously other possibilities. It's also, given the destruction of Targaryen and Valerian history and houses and everything, there might be a little less concern about the exact direct lines or fathers or, you know, they just, hey, we just got to survive, right? That, yeah. Some things might be more in question than normal. That's true, yeah. Like, whenever you only have one, maybe there's only one female House Valarian member that was marriageable at that time, it wouldn't necessarily matter what branch of the family she was from as long as she had the name Valarian. But if there were multiples, they would pick the, the closest to the main line, probably. And it's less important to know what the specific familial relationship is with Damon. It's just important to know that he was family and that his involvement might be more than just, well, he's the Lord of, he's a new uh, master of ships. So clearly he's the guy here. So there may have been some, some personal angles to, to consider here, which would make the whole thing a little more interesting, especially given what ends up happening, which we'll get to shortly. He would have definitely been familiar to them, regardless of, of what age he was or what his relationship to their mother was. And he would have very possibly, given his age, been someone that they were used to seeing as an authority figure, someone that was constantly at their father's side. When Lord Arian ruled Dragonstone, Lord Damon may have been someone that conferred with him frequently. They would have had a lot to talk about. They would have been uh, their neighbors, right? <laughs> Driftmark right next to Dragonstone. So there, there could have been a, a big presence in their youth. Now, Damon's sons include Aethon, who will eventually succeed him as both Lord of Tides and Masterships, and Coralise, not to be confused with the Sea Snake, who will eventually become the first Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. There's at least one more unnamed son. Given how battles normally go and who gets represented by individual houses when it comes to war, I would kind of guess that Ethan stayed home as the future lord. He would rule in his father's absence. It's kind of like how they expected Rob to stay home. <laughs> you know, yeah. he, he left, but he was supposed to stay there. Like everyone else went to court, pretty much. Bran was going to go. Only Rickon was going to stay because he was so young. 
and Rob was going to stay because he's the heir. So it's a similar thing, I would guess. Ethan stu- stayed behind, whereas Coralise, the one who ended up being a warrior, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, was probably already a warrior at this point. He may have been there. He may have been at his father's side or maybe even commanding a separate ship. Uh, kind of depends on his age and experience, which is unclear. So this new royal fleet, like I said in the intro, was mostly Valarian ships. But there would also be some Targaryen ships straight from Dragonstone, some ones from House Celtigar or Celtigar, if you prefer, <laughs> and other lords of Blackwater Bay. Should we know Ethan's age range? Well, uh, yes, given that Corlys, his younger brother, is going to become Lord Commander of the Kingsguard 10 years later. Probably wasn't only like 20 years old when he became Lord Commander or even even 25. It's usually a job that goes to a bit of an older man, even though this would be the first Lord Commander. So that wasn't necessarily established. So you would expect a more senior man to be in charge of the king's protection. Someone someone more patient and disciplined rather than a someone trying to prove themselves. You know what I mean? So... Uh, we don't know how old he was, but we can assume he was very likely, they were very likely both adults or young young adults at this point because of what important jobs they would have very soon after. Yeah, Ethan's going to be Lord of the Tides within a few years of this. Or, I, or actually right away. For <laughs> the most part, I agree. <laughs> but still, when you think about, and maybe George even regrets how young he made some of the kids, but considering how old Rob was when he's like leading the North into war, yeah, how old was he 10 years prior? Ethan could have been that old. And that might be reason why he stayed because he was as young as Rickon. That's new. true. Maybe I'm pushing some numbers, but absolutely, yeah. Corlys could have been like the youngest. I would guess he could be as ten, which mean, which would mean he was not in the battle. I would think, but yeah. but if he was only a little bit older, he might have been there. So anyway, a few other parallels to the Rainey's Oris campaign and the and the uh, and the campaign here is that the dispositions were similar in that the army sent to battle King Argilac the Arrogant, where Oris Baratheon handed the king led the soldiers while Rhaenys accompanied them on Dragonback, whereas Visenya brought Vagar and spoke for her brother, but the soldiers, in this case, the navy, were commanded by Daemon Valarian, the master ship. So in both cases, you have this person who's close to their family, a Valarian and Oris Baratheon, are in charge of the soldiers, whereas there's the sister queen riding one of the dragons is, as I call it in the Battle of Last Storm episode, which comes out next week, is like a dragon chaperone of sorts. Like, Oris can't order Rhaenys what to do, but Rhaenys isn't explicitly in charge of the army either. She's not a battle commander per se. It's the same thing here. Visenya isn't a naval commander. She doesn't have a lot of experience on shipboard, most likely. But Damon Valarin's not going to tell her what to do either. It's kind of like what we're going to see in the Dance of the Dragons, uh, which would be a spoiler for you to me to say too much about. But there is this situation where you have people who have titles that are not in the same category and it's unclear who can tell who what to do and in this case is there no one's going to tell Aegon's sister what to do right but it, it's still kind of an interesting unique command situation where uh, one person isn't in charge of everything it's a very common thing in the modern military which is very structured and organized all kinds of legal rules and precedents have been established but you still have scenarios where there are ranks like you're saying it's like ranks you know sergeant Staff sergeant, master sergeant, lieutenant, captain, colonel. But then there's also positions. So you can have one captain who is in charge of a company and another captain who is the intelligence officer for the battalion. You know, they're both the same rank, but the intelligence officer has no business telling the soldiers in his company what to do. Does that make sense? You have different roles of responsibility. And similarly, too, it's almost like the difference between a warrior and a soldier. You know, this warrior might be able to kick anyone's butt, but this soldier knows how to direct the pieces mm. of the battlefield to maneuver the flank and send the archers the warrior doesn't have any leadership skills he just no one can beat him at sword fighting so 
when you go back to medieval times in the Game of Thrones scenario, it's almost one thing that intrigued me about the story in the first place is what if the prince tells you to get the horse out of the stable and the queen tells you to put the horse in the stable and, <laughs> yeah. and your your captain tells you to go do guard duty. Like, who do you follow the command of? So these torn loyalties, you know, this is one way it can play out here. Right on. That makes sense. We hear that. We hear that happening in, in regular non-military organizations, too, where sometimes they just it's a defunct or d- dysfunctional organization where you have employees that can be ordered around by multiple bosses and these orders might conflict. And yeah, yeah. what do you do? Yeah. The, the manager who's there every day tells you to do one thing. The owner that pops in once a month tells you to do another thing. Yeah, yeah. You what know you, they're both wrong. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're the one who does it every day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in both cases, we have a close but uncertain relation of House Targaryen and, and a member of the small council leading the soldiers while a queen and sister to Aegon riding a dragon assists. Now... Nina points out it, it's worth mentioning that Visenya may have expected or was expecting to act with more military autonomy compared to her sister in the Stormlands, where Aegon and Oranis might have relied on Oris because he was at least experienced as a warrior somewhat. Visenya uh, was actually a warrior. She trained alongside her brother. She fought with Dark Sister. So she may have actually had more experience, more combat knowledge than Rhaenys was. Even though Rhaenys was was very skilled as a dragon rider, it's explicitly pointed out that she's not a warrior, which would mean she's certainly not a strategist either, I wouldn't think. Whereas Visenya, it's not as clear what her military knowledge was, but there's a lot of reason to suspect that she was more of such than her sister, but not necessarily something that she worked on a lot because later in the in the conquest we'll see that she's often the one that does the ruling when Aegon is off doing other stuff she does a lot of the day-to-day not to mention a lot of other things let's just say i'm gonna say it right now visenya might be my favorite targaryen of all of them she's just really cool and interesting and her personality is a lot more defined than either of her siblings which helps a lot too for for latching on to her as something to be interested in. So, in both cases, there was also a marriage offer. Argilac offered his daughter to Aegon. Shara offered herself to Aegon as well, but she already had a son named Ronald, whose father had passed. We don't know who the father was. Oh, another one of these where we don't know who the father was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, she was Queen Regent and Ronald's mother, presumably king uh, before Ronald, and uh, was... Rather, he whoever he was, he had been king before Ronald, and maybe Shara was not an Aaron by birth. It's not clear. If if she was, then the husband is less important. <laughs> that might be why he's not mentioned. Now, Gildane mocks Shara for being a quote faded flower who was apparently like one of the most beautiful women in the Seven Kingdoms, but that had been like a decade prior, and. I think he's kind of missing the point, perhaps, with the way a historian would be expected to. Her strategy was fine. Like, why not make the offer? It couldn't hurt. He says, no, big deal. She's not offended. She knows it's a political move. She's not like, oh, he's not attracted to me. You know, that's not what she's, she doesn't care yeah. about that. I mean, it would be a benefit. It'd be nice. Like, use your, if you, if you've got it, flaunt it, right? She's trying to, if, if that's a, a weapon in her arsenal, use it. But that's not, Gildane is perhaps, making too much of that being the main point here. It's like, yeah, like that's not why Aegon turned her down. Aegon wouldn't have turned down a good political marriage because she's not attractive enough. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like Aegon doesn't think that way. (laughs) There's no evidence of that. And it's just, it's not very pragmatic either. Also, it's, I mean, I guess I don't know, but it's not like she went from being 
50 years old to 60 years old. And even if she yeah. did, there's attractive. I mean, no one 10 years from now is going to say, well, Timothy Chalamet is not attractive anymore. You know, well, age <laughs> would matter a bit because of the, having children. OK, matter. so there is there is still that. But she's not. She, but she apparently was not out of her childbearing years by any means. But still, there was the she her, the, the the addition to the marriage offer of Ron. You have to name Ronald as your heir is like that's a bigger no than taking a third wife <laughs> would have been is like no it has to be a, a child of my body has to be the king like they the realm won't even accept your son let alone if i was willing to accept him so i really just wanted to talk about how attractive timothy chalamet is <laughs> <laughs> again <laughs> <laughs> so she thought that by bargaining from strength maybe she could get a different offer maybe maybe she wouldn't have expected that offer to be accepted he's like he's not going to really take my son as his heir but it's a point like it's, an, it's a starting point maybe. i didn't even think of that yeah she's trying to make the point like i'm willing to do whatever yeah right I, this know, is like, a, you know, this is what i would like to do like maybe offer me a compromise but he just said no like there was no compromise because Aegon is not really about compromising <laughs> and whether or not she realized it that wasn't necessarily a slight on her that's just his mo yeah right yeah exactly like if he had had a really young daughter he might have offered to marry that really young daughter to Ronald. That might have been a way to bring the kingdoms together. In fact, I'd save this for a little bit later, but originally George did write it as Aegon, having, Aegon and his sisters having a daughter or two. And then mm. in early planning, it was never like written in the books or anything like that. It wasn't a retcon. But it makes sense he eliminated that because he didn't want that to be a, a variable and is negotiating with the different I think lords, so, yeah. yeah. It enables the character of Aegon to be more domineering and just because, you know, I don't make alliances. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like know? even that offer that you're supposing he might have made, he might have made it after they bent the knee. Right, right? Yeah. yes, that's true. He's still, you could submit to me and this marriage alliance will tie our houses together as the Targaryens and, and the Aarons did have several marriages later and to, and, and to one or two other houses in the Vale. But... That was to shore up alliances, not to create an equal an equal alliance, right? Something to help the support the throne rather than someone to be the equal of the throne. So this comes up because Argilac did get a counteroffer, right? When Argilac made his offer of his daughter to Aegon, Argilac, Aegon countered with Oris to his daughter. Uh, but there was no offer of Oris to Shara, which... That wouldn't have worked the same way. That that wouldn't have accomplished the same things. Shar already had a son. So the same problem exists there with with starting a new line or or all that sort of business. You can't do that with a child in the way. And the only way to deal with that is to you know kill the kid, which is not at all the kind of you know obviously Aegon and Oris and everyone they're willing to kill people, but they're not they're not trying to kill children. Publicly. They don't want that to be the way they got to where they are. Yeah, right? that yeah. doesn't look good. I mean, I don't think I don't think it's about honor and ethics i think it's about optics like they would be totally willing to do that if it meant they got accomplished their goals but it, it's counterproductive to their goals luckily for a lot of westerosi children <laughs> yeah. you know another thing little things we had speculated in the past that i, I feel ripple effects as we go through this i wonder if he knew argilac wouldn't accept that marriage anyway so he makes himself seem reasonable offering it knowing argilac's not going to take it um, maybe also there is a bit of sexism in there. He offers a better deal to the male leaders. You know, it's possible. It's a signal to the other male leaders in the other kingdoms. It is entirely possible. On the other hand, one theory I have is that they knew Argilac would never bend the knee and they would have to kill him. <laughs> they would have to beat him and kill him in order to, to, to overcome him. Whereas Shara was clearly more willing to negotiate. Like they sent Argilac a counteroffer and he flipped his lid and cut the cut envoy's the, hands off. Yeah, like, yeah. okay, well that's the end of that. We're not <laughs> sending another envoy to him. <laughs> 
But Shara, they just cut off negotiations because they're like, well, no, this is untenable because you have a son. There's just no way. It, this won't work. So they'd, yeah. So it's not, it's possible there was some, some gender specific angles to this, but I think the biggest hang up for the Targaryens was her existing son. In both regions, the campaign, campaign, <laughs> the campaign between two large powers allows an opportunity for smaller players to take advantage to the benefit of the Targaryens. Argilac had already lost Bannerman to Aegon. That was before the war even started. We were talking about mostly the lords of Nerissi, like Massey and Bar Emmon. But that became more official when the Bannermen were actually called and you saw who they marched with. And when Argilac called his banners, the Dornishmen raid the marches and pirates raid the coasts. The Vale is going to see defections as well, as we'll see. Nina says, this is part and parcel of the pre-conquest great game of Westerosi geopolitics. If someone gets too powerful... Everyone else is going to gang up on them. We've used the board game analogy a lot of times. No one wants to see someone get so powerful that they're able to win. So it's the one time where people will team up. It's the one time where they unite against a common enemy is when there's someone that threatens to take down them all. With Aegon, they didn't do that. <laughs> there's, I was going to say there's Not a couple much. caveats to what you're saying, though. If someone gets within a certain range of too powerful, because when they get clearly dominantly too powerful... Well, we can't do anything about that. Yeah. And that, you have as long as you have a good leader in charge, is better for stability, which is kind of what the whole thing Aegon is doing. Right? Yes. So. And and Shara also asked for lands. She asked for all the lands east of the Green Fork of the Trident for the Vale's support against Black Hair. And she's like, look, well, instead of a marriage, we could do this instead. So there were all sorts of offers and, and potential negotiation points that could have come up with a compromise. But again, Aegon was just like, nah, I'm not doing that. You you bend the knee, or that's that. <laughs> you know, now, another thing, too, earlier on, being hard about things and not compromising, getting people to fall in line, later on makes people more likely to just fall in line. Like, well, he's not taking true. compromises. He's already beat these people. He has more behind him now. Like, it's more and more lopsided. But at the same time, that enables him to be more compromising toward the end, you know? That's like, true. He When he is willing to compromise, it's like, oh, he is. It's It's possible, but it's rare, yeah. He doesn't want to maybe seem so unbending that he's never compromising. But but he but having it be rare does make sense that people will rarely expect it. One other aspect of Aegon not having daughters is that it would have proved he could have kids. Which because oh, he didn't have yeah. any. Which which is a wrinkle that we've entertained at various points and find it quite interesting as far as people willingness to bend the knee. If he already had children, I wonder if how that would have changed things besides the marriage offers, which would have certainly been, there would have been a lot more of those like, yeah, marry your son to mine. Of course, if, if they had had a son and a daughter who were already married, like the Targaryens mm -hmm. do, then that wouldn't have, that door would have been closed too. But maybe they have two sons and one daughter. Anyway, you know, George is like, nope, no kids at all. Let's just, <laughs> I, I was going to say, you wonder how that would have changed things. George probably did too. He probably went through a lot of if thens, yeah. you know, I think I brought this up before in the, the, the writers of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul talked a lot about how there's way more stuff that they wrote that was scrapped than mm. what we actually oh, see. Yeah, yeah. Because they go through these paths of how it will play out and realize it won't work or doesn't drive this thing. So to scrap it and kind of go back. I'm sure George Dutt and is doing currently is doing a lot of that now. You yeah, know? yeah, you're probably right. And George doesn't like he's obviously not someone who shirks the more complicated option right <laughs> he's yeah. not like he's like oh this would be too much this would be too much world building like oh george is that's <laughs> not going to stop him i don't think so so i don't think it was purely to make it simple and easy for himself 
But that would have maybe been a benefit. That's certainly like yeah. a notable benefit. But probably fundamentally, he keep kept like as he thought about how each of these kingdoms would go, it kept being the complicating factor. And yes. he probably went through, well, what if it's a daughter, or what if it's what? And eventually, he's like, uh, I just need to eliminate it all together. Which a, maybe that's also a lot of parameters, right? A lot of permutations, like two yeah. sons, one daughter, two so- daughters, one son. okay, four sons, one da- five daughters, no sons. Like son all and daughter different- married each other already. Son yeah, daughter married to other people. Already. Yeah, with the like, incest oh. in the mix, the possibilities yeah. are really <laughs> ridiculous. So yeah, maybe that maybe maybe it really was about the simplifying. <laughs> 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 he tried all those options, like all these stink. They're all just uh, no. We just got to keep it simpler. But anyway, so on the Vale side, let's talk about what they had going for them and what they were bringing to the battlefield or the battle sea. <laughs> yes, the naval encounter. What do you call that? It's not a battlefield when it's at the ocean. On the Aran side, like the other kingdoms, the Valemen had plenty of warning that Targaryens were coming. After all, Aegon had sent out his letter. He's like, I'm bend the knee or else. You know, how polite of him, right? To, to <laughs> tell everybody, right? <laughs> <laughs> so they knew what was happening. That's why all that negotiating happened. And. And he he was saying, hey, look, if you want to join me early on, there are going to be benefits. Like, we saw that. Like, the Tullys were heavily rewarded. But when this battle kicks off, when this campaign kicks off, that hasn't happened yet. So no one has seen what happens when you bend the knee to Aegon other than a few Crownlands lords. So there isn't really a established expectation for what happens. Precedent. There. Yeah, there isn't a big precedent there. None of the major powers had bent the knee to Aegon and saw what happened yet. And that's part of what makes this Vale campaign so interesting, is that it's the first one to kick off, but it is not nearly the first one to finish. A lot happens in between it starting and finishing, so that a lot of these examples of what happens do pile up. So by the end of it, we see that the, the Valemen, Queen Shara, etc., they have a lot more information with which to make a decision, and that, that makes it unique in its own way. Compare, uh, Nina brings up the letter that Stannis sends out as a comparison to the letter that's sent out by Aegon. One is Stannis says, I'm the true king because Cersei's children aren't hers or aren't Robert's. Like it's a it's a legal thing. It's mm-hmm. like this results in this result. Like this means I'm king. Whereas Aegon is just like, I'm king because I'm the strongest and I'm coming for you. That's a totally different thing. We made that comparison before, but that's a pretty huge difference in the way it's presented because people can ignore Stannis like. You're not strong enough to take us. Your legal claim doesn't scare us. Your dragon, though, Aegon, that does. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I just want to be fair to Stannis. It's not that he was approaching it wrong. That's just the scenario that was there. Right. Like he was yeah. legally correct. Yes, and Aegon was, was more powerful. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, that's both if true, Stannis yes. had been more powerful, he probably would have been, Stannis might not have, Stannis might not have included in the letter. He yeah. might have said, these are the Here facts, believe yeah. me or not, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it would have been different, true. If he was if he was bargaining or sending letters out from a bigger position of strength. Yeah. Which he himself puts out. Remember that in the, in the first chapter, uh, his his wife is like, you, it's just like, you're just like Aegon. You know, you had a small army and yeah. this and that. We're here on Dragonstone. He's like, he had dragons. Mm-hmm. Hello. You know, <laughs> don't forget that. <laughs> I will say that even though I was trying to contrast him, there's a parallel too. Aegon doesn't try to justify why he's doing it. Like, no, he's just like, legal no, or not, like, it seems like he had decent justification, but that wasn't part of what he was doing. He's like, I'm just more powerful. Yeah. He, Stannis is like, I just am legally the one, you know, the, neither of them were necessarily offering justifications. Just Which, which is, in a lot of Westerosi minds, strength is a justification. Like, that's a hard, maybe hard for us to wrap ourselves mind mm-hmm. around, but like, yeah. when Balon took the North, 
uh, it was brought up at council and someone was like, well, by what right does he hold? He's like, and Ty was like, by right of conquest. Like, that's how he has it. Yeah. You know, he's like, he took it. So it's his. Like, if he can hold it, the law? if he can hold yeah. it, it's his, you know? And, and so Tywin was very just matter of fact about it. It's like, y'all, this is, this is, this is how our realm works. If someone yeah. takes it and holds it, it's theirs. Like, how do you not get that? You know? So in that, Tywin was right. I mean, you don't have to agree with that being the, the, sta- the, the right way to it, do things. It doesn't but it mean is it's the way the state, the of, state of things should be, but it is the state of things. Yeah. So. It's, it's a fact whether we want it to be or not. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, that's very interesting and it's the fact that we don't have to listen to laws you know <laughs> like the law is the law but that doesn't mean we have to obey the law we're powerful enough to disobey the law we can or law that's that happens to laws all the time if if you're not going to get caught or you can't be imprisoned you're above the law then you might choose to not obey that law you know like people do that large and small all the time in the real world uh king ronald aaron was a quote boy we don't have an exact age, but the subtext is that this is not like a diminutive. They're not trying to make him seem younger. He really is quite young. I think 11 is probably the oldest I would guess, but I'm, I would actually guess more like eight, uh, maybe even seven. Uh, so I'm not sure, but very, very young. Too, too very young enough to have very little idea what's happening, <laughs> to not make any decisions or just be like, mom, let's, you know, I want to have dinner, you know, that kind of thing. Not a, even if someone made a point of trying to explain it all to him, he still couldn't understand the context or some of the yeah. literal words that were being used in the conversation. So a lot about Ronald call, uh, calls up images of sweet Robin, Ronald, Robert, you know, Ro- Ronald Aaron, Robert Aaron being a boy, having a mother as regent, you know, this mother trying to negotiate with bigger powers <laughs> and things like that. There are some similarities, but a lot of them are just kind of surface level, actually. Uh, Nina even goes so far as to call it a possible uh, red herring to make us think of Sweet Robin, but it's the differences are pretty substantial. So we'll see that as we're moving through this episode. Uh, I wanted to throw that out early in case you were already thinking of Sweet Robin. It is a a good catch, but ultimately it's going to fork in the road uh, for a lot of reasons. Is it a red herring or... A red falcon. The red falcon. Nice. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so Queen Shara and her advisors ordered the assembly of a fleet, which included assistance from the Sea Lord of Bravos, who sent a dozen warships to their aid. We're curious to know if this was due to an existing alliance. Maybe they already had trade, a, a trade deal, or ha- had good, were on good terms for other reasons, or because the Bravosi are already anti-Valyrian, or maybe maybe a little both. That may be why they were willing to help. Now. One of the reasons why we suspect a, an alliance or at least a good relationship between Queen Shara or just the Vale in general and Bravos is that they're so close. Bravos and the Fing, I mean, they're like just to skip over the narrow sea there. So uh, it, it's easy to forget that, but the Vale and Bravos are uh, geographic uh, neighbors, really. So they would have a lot of dealings with each other. And yeah, the Bravosi might still be thinking of. The past dragon lords or the more recent Emperor Orion, the guy who tried to reestablish the Valyrian Empire, that had only been, you know, 100 years gone. So it wasn't a super long time ago. It would still be in a lot of people's memories, especially powerful people who who think about such things. And the Bravosi would certainly have a long memory about Valyrian things. So they may have been wary of that. It's definitely a possibility that it was on their minds. They wouldn't want to see a a new Valyrian-oriented dynasty arise after another one had fallen so soon like dang it they're coming back because they don't know that Aegon's going to convert to the seven and all it's going to 
They don't know that at all. They don't know he's going to bring slavery to. They have no idea. Yeah, I just said it didn't occur to me. They might be really worried that he's about to reinstall slavery on a whole new continent. You know? Yeah, they have no. Yeah, they have no idea what kind of king he's going to be. And and frankly, neither do a lot of the Westerosi lords. You know, even the king, even the one that he's coming for, they don't exactly know what he's going to do. They have an idea, maybe the way he's carried himself, the way he's presented himself. And as the war progresses and more and more people submit, they get more and more evidence of how these people are going to be treated. That could still make them suspicious, though. He's only treated them that way in the short term until we've all submitted. Then he's going to do something different. Like, Or even if he doesn't, even if he continues to be prudent. Yeah. Is his, his son. Yeah. Yeah. Does he even have a son? Does he even right? have a son? So, yes, yeah, there's a lots of concerns to have. And, and a lot of people might have just said, hey, we don't want any one power to dominate Westeros. That's not something great. You know, you don't want to... <laughs> we, we would rather not have that. Bravos might want that because Bravos might think, well... If there's this big unified power to our west, it might become a threat to our independence in the long term. It may not be a short-term problem, but who knows? Even aside from uh, the potential future problems, or even the potential of it becoming better overall, it would still be changed in a short run. Yeah. They probably have certain alliances and treaties and trade routes and such set up with the Vale and the Crownlands, and, or it's not the Crownlands yet, but the, the Stormlands and so on and so now this is all going to become disruptive mm. and they might have to rework deals old debts might come into question so on and so on so you could see yeah. why this might be concerning even if they could see a long run where it's better but they can easily see a long run where it's worse if this targaryen starts up slavery again right so that's a great point about debt if if the veil had a debt to bravos <laughs> and they got conquered would that debt just be obliterated and say yeah. oh, that debt doesn't exist anymore your debt was to the throne of Aaron's, which no longer exists. <laughs> like, remember that was conditioned for Stannis. The Iron Thro the Iron Bank's like, we'll back you, but only if you take on all the debts from your enemies that they owe. They owe us all this money. You have to take on that and pay us back, and we'll we'll we'll, we'll give you more money. And Stannis is like, damn, but okay. <laughs> it's like that's worth it, but ouch, that's going to be expensive. But it's not coming out of his pocket, so you know. Can I can I share an anecdote of an anecdote? Okay, <laughs> we saw Rowood Junior, the comedian. Yeah, and uh, he had this story about. This friend he had who owed him 1200 bucks And, man, this, like, you know how he got out of it? He went up and died. <laughs> the audacity <laughs> to leave this earth knowing he owes me. He <laughs> should have put that in his will. Yeah, like, I owed him 1200 Make sure he gets taken care of if I pass. <laughs> so, if Bravo, so that's another thing from Bravo's angle. Or two other things, really. If you're an independent city-state... You really don't want any big powers around you, like as your neighbor. You want them to be sort of smaller and, and piecemeal, I think, in, in most cases. Uh, especially given their experience with large powers, because their big experience with large powers is Valyria, which is that obviously wasn't good for them. But also, if the Targaryens rule Westeros, is that who they have to trade with? If to trade with the Valyrians now? Like, that's who they have to arrange these deals with? That's not great. I mean, it would still be mostly done under the auspices of these individuals, and they're not trading every... It doesn't flow directly through the king. But that's where those taxes would be going and all that, and they'd be mm -hmm. like, eh, it would rub them wrong, I think. Anyway, there's plenty of reasons to see why Bravos would take the Vale's side here. It's, it, there's there's a long list of Did we mention that maybe they haven't seen the dragons yet either, right? <laughs> Another reason other people were drawing, blowing an egg on off. That yeah. is entirely possible. And maybe they wish they had, given how this battle is going to go, which we'll see in a moment. <laughs> so she also sent an army to the Bloody Gate, which, to beef it up. Now, a confrontation there would have been very interesting. It would have been stupid 
to try a traditional battle there for the attackers, given how advantageous it is for the defenders and the long history of armies just shattering themselves to bloody pulp at the bloody gate. That's why it's called the bloody gate. But a dragon... All, everyone packed in so tight like that, coming down above, like it becomes, it goes from a big advantage to a big disadvantage, quite possibly, depending on exactly how the terrain is. Like it's not like we've seen it. So it becomes I, the barbecue gate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly the, the 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 fire gate. Exactly. So it would have been interesting to see in a you know bloody awful way, <laughs> but <laughs> thankfully fictional. But she. It didn't come to that because, as I said, the Targaryens were like, yeah, we're not going to send an army against that. That that never works. So she ordered the defenses strengthened elsewhere, too, uh, particularly Galltown. Now, Galltown is super important here. It's one of the true five cities in Westeros. Funny that two of those five cities, cities, have the word town in them. <laughs> Old town and Galltown. You got to start they, somewhere. Yeah, they, had, they started small. Exactly. Nina wrote the same thing here. There, you know. There are errands of Galltown. Like kind of like the Lannisters of Lannisport, but they haven't been around nearly as long. In fact, they're not around at this point. They're they don't come around until the time of Jaehaerys the First. So if you're wondering about that, if you're someone thinking about the errands of Gulltown, don't because they don't exist yet. It's actually ruled by House Grafton. The Graftons notably have a sigil that has a good deal in common with the High Tower sigil. Look at all that fire! <laughs> it looks like kind of like the High Tower, right? It looks like a tower on fire. Word is that the uh, that House Coharis was bummed that this uh, was already taken because, you know, they took over a castle with mm. burning towers. And they're like, y'all already have a burning tower sigil? Well, we'll have to do something <laughs> else. Nina wrote some words for House Grafton because they don't have any. And they are, so burns our faith. It's pretty good. Mm. I mean, burning, yeah. yeah they're, they are a, 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 a house of Andals. They took the house over from its previous owners of the first men who were House Shet. What's interesting is that House Shet is still around and they live in Gulltown. So the Shets were overthrown, but they still exist and have a tower in Gulltown called Gull Tower. Uh, though it was the Graftons who actually grew the city larger. Like to be fair, yes, they took it from the Shets, but it was a town <laughs> back then. And now it's a city under the Graftons. It grew to its current size. We may have anyway, though. It is an na excellent natural harbor built for this sort of thing or built <laughs> naturally occurring perfectly for the sort of thing <laughs> it was a building game later and very minor point i don't have some reason to defend the shets or anything but it could be that it grew to a city despite the graftons maybe the shets really laid the groundwork and yeah that's true know. that's a good it's, it's entirely possible so it's probably similar in size to white harbor roughly because it is it's apparently much smaller than king's landing old town or lannisport and white harbor is the only other city which isn't mentioned in that phrasing about how it's much smaller than those three so i'm guessing there's Three big cities and two smaller cities. It's the central reason the Vale can stay supplied even in winter with a wide variety of goods. And as I just said, part of that reason for that is it's in a very hot trade location. It's right in the middle of the continent on the eastern seaboard. And that's where a ton of trade is. Right across the way is Bravos, as we said. It's the closest of the Westerosi major locations to Bravos. It's not too far from Pentos, Mir, Tyrosh on the other side and then on its own side it's close to white harbor and king's landing and duskendale and everyone would stop there on the way going to other places so it's just a really big important place even though it isn't talked about a lot it's hugely important it's the halfway point between king's landing and white harbor they would stop at all three a lot of ships coming by given the remoteness of the eerie and the value of gulltown it's pretty easy to see why this was the target 
why the ship sailed for this port to try to take it. And because in theory, taking Gulltown alone might be enough to force the errands to capitulate. Like the entire veil, if they hold it long enough and like winter comes, the entire veil might be like, uh, okay, we got to give up. We don't have our port. Like, we should have listened to port. the North. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the Targaryens presumably knew that. They knew all this. And the Aarons knew that the Targaryens knew this. It's all pretty out in the open. Like, take the city and the whole region might fall. It's pretty straightforward. So plans were made accordingly on both sides. I still want to say, even when things are all out there, it still takes someone to bother to gather that information and make a good decision based on it. I still want to give Aegon credit for piecing it together properly. Because there's lots of stuff that's all out there. And then some leader still makes the worst decision given, you know, like, (laughs) it was laid all out there for Argolak. Right? <laughs> yeah, it was laid all out there for Argolak, and he still just his pride, his personality were such were such well known quantities. Like this is an older man who had a long career. Was like his personality is out there. Everybody knows kind of what kind of man he is. He'd been this way for a long time, and it's not like people change a lot when they're older. You know, I mean, people don't necessarily change a lot when they're younger either. But it's things... you have more time to change when you're yeah, younger. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, <laughs> you're less set in your ways, etc. So it was a little more understandable. And, of course, as we said at the beginning, there was also a little more wiggle room. Like, Argolak had basically set things that there could only be one result. He's like, he cut the hands of the envoy. Yeah. Like, that's <laughs> it. Like, this is, it's going, <laughs> this has to be dealt with one way or another. There's no, there's no coming back from that. Meanwhile, here in the Vale, though, they hadn't gone to, nothing had been made personal. There weren't violations of diplomacy. There was a willingness to compromise on the Aaron side. So there's there was more room here, and as we'll see, that's going to play out eventually. But not for quite a while. There's a lot going to happen in the meantime before that. I really wonder what the mood was like in Gulltown and the rest of the Vale, as we did with some of these other kingdoms. Like with Argolak, it's almost straightforward. They had been his men for so long. They'd fought at his side for so long. Westeros being what it is, they're going to follow him. He had been their king forever. They had fought, you know, he had fought all these battles, won all these victories. There's really no other way for it to go. They had, they were going to follow him. Queen Shara, it's a little different. Westeros isn't as big on following women. She's not some war hero, right? Everybody recognizes that she won't even be in charge in, in a few years once her son comes of age. So you don't want to like offend her or like insult her. But, but it's you're not, not like, going to get your home burned down for her. Right, exactly. It's not the same. You haven't fought by her side your whole life. Where This is what a lot of these lords are thinking. So it's a much different calculus. It's a much different scenario. They kind of knew what they were faced with in the Stormlands. It was going to come down to a big conflict here. Like, there's there's no, like, central battleground. There's no big place to meet, you know? there. It's so different. The Vale is such a different theater of war than the Stormlands. There's no big rain issue there's not trees everywhere that soldiers can hide in which is a big deal for concealing themselves from the dragon it's just very different so i can't say enough about how different it is so i really wonder what the lords of the Vale were thinking i mean you've got tradition which is so powerful in keeping some of these things in place it's one of the main reasons why so many of these lords are so stubborn so many kings and queens are so stubborn about giving up because their families have held this for so long and they're going to be the one written about in the history book is the one that lost it. Like this is after 8,000 years, Queen Shara is the one that <laughs> had to lay down the crown. King Argolak is the one that finally lost it. You know, and like they don't want to be the one in the history books to be remembered. Like they want to be remembered after they're gone. Not for that, right? Um, A lot of times too, the traditions, it can be a mistake maybe sometimes to stick to them, but there's something to be said for them. There's arguments to be made. Where, yeah. But... But what happens is things are built upon that as well. 
right? Mm -hmm. your, your, your reality, your decisions, your relationships with people are all built upon that. So if you abandon that, you're kind of abandoning everything. And that's, it's, it's, so, it's so easier to look back with hindsight, you know, to say, oh, man, they should just abandon that tradition, you know. But uh, I'm thinking, for example, like some of Einstein's theories that he was coming up with were just c almost completely rejected by almost the entire scientific community. <laughs> and I don't know, 30 years later, they're like, oh, he was completely right, you know. Like, <laughs> and they weren't a bunch of morons. They were no. highly educated, but they just had all this sense of reality built on other pieces of reality. And when he challenges those fundamental things, you have to abandon everything else, and it's not easy to do. It's understandably not easy to do. It's Yeah, it's like changing your entire reality. Everything yeah. you thought had been real, and everything you thought was real that your parents thought you were your grandparents. And this is this is the part of it that's hard to comprehend because we don't have our own history does stretch back this far, but not in a way that we can attach ourselves to, not in a way that we can connect with, like yeah. they potentially can here. Like, these people can go... My family was here this long ago. <laughs> you know, I was like, I can't say that. Like, my family wasn't in America even 300 years, even 200 years ago. Well, they, yeah, they were. But, but still, <laughs> nowhere near thousands yeah. of years. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's really hard to fathom what's at stake in terms of, of pride and tradition and culture. And uh, that's part of why Aegon has to just prove how strong he is because that's part of what he has to overcome is he does have to challenge their reality yeah, yeah yeah he has to prove that he's stronger than that that this is better that this new world can work better in a lot of ways and but they have to it has to be proven because they can't imagine it uh, by themselves because they it does their their existing worldview doesn't allow for that sort of imagination it doesn't fit in that worldview one king a dragon rider like these things have they've never imagined it yeah all right let's take a quick break and we'll come back with the actual battle and the continuation of the campaign in the Vale. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know the name Damon Valarian, this Lord Damon Valarian who's ruling uh, the the Driftmark at this point and and ruling House Valarian. He's the master of sh uh, master of ships. Even though he predates you know Prince Damon and the era of the dance, Damon is always like associated with the Valarians. You know, on the TV show and in the book. So he, he raised Valarian children as his own, you know, <laughs> with Rhaenyra, you know, not on his own, but a, I meant to say as his own. And and she was married to a Valarian, you know, and, and he's allies with a sea snake. So it's just like this name is, just throws me off. It's, it's like Damon Valarian. And guess what Damon Valarian's son, Athan, named his firstborn son? Damon Valarian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't get less confusing, but it's cool. It's realistic. They do name themselves after their after their ancestors, which hey, happens in the real world too, right? <laughs> I want to point out real quick, even though I'm in town out of out of normal spot, I still have a crazy mix. Oh, yeah, we skipped over your your yeah. crazy beverage. I, I wanted to make a joke too about I couldn't find a big mug so I just have a shot glass. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish I had a blue drink. I wanted to represent the, the air and blue. But, oh yeah. But I have a watermelon Red Bull mixed with the naked green machine and it's tasty. <laughs> your your drink kind of matches my shirt. We're both wearing oh, yeah. history of Westeros shirts as we pointed out at the beginning but now I get to point out the, the color connection therein. 
we're representing here we go talking about the prince damon and and the dance of the dragons and we've got our blacks and greens on i'm unmuting mm. myself for the first time in the episode to point out my shirt which is an our flag means death shirt yeah because our flag i'm means super death. hype because the season two comes back in a week and a half two weeks or so oh that's yeah soon. that's pretty soon yeah, yeah so I knew it was, soon. that's right very cool yeah very exciting we were worried that would be a casualty it took a while for them to announce that season two was going to happen. It was like, everybody was like anxious, like, is it going to happen? Is they going to make it? But yes, it's Anyone there. Who who doesn't know that show should probably watch it, especially if you like humor and pirates <laughs> and many other things that are in there too. But, but also, uh, Reese Darby and Taika Waititi, who were you know, primary drivers behind that show, were also primary drivers behind Flight of the Concords from a generation back, another show that I love a lot. Yep, which is also hilarious. If you haven't seen Flight of the Concords, you also need to watch that. <laughs> Question from Julie A. Did we hear what's in the shot glass or shouldn't we ask? It was just the Red Bull. Sorry, <laughs> that's so boring. Oh. <laughs> he shot Red Bull. Not, I might fly away in the second half here. <laughs> not Green Bull or Blue Bull or just Red Bull. Yeah. Hmm. I wish it had been Blue Falcon. If it had been those three colors, it's the Trident color. We've got the, the Riverlands Bull. <laughs> the Trident Bull. <laughs> Mm hmm. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about the battle off Gulltown. That's right. Off, not of, because it was in the water outside of Gulltown, not in Gulltown. Is that you know, like how do you usually say that? I thought when you were talking about the the battlefield, but it's the ocean battlefront. Maybe could battle cover. It. I don't know if that's okay. the correct yeah. terminology for a like a battle, lot of battles but... are still the said battle of blank, and it's even when it's in the water. So I don't know if sometimes it's not that, but anyway. Not important. The navies, other than the 12 Bravosi warships on the Vale side, were not actually too clear on how large either force was. It says the Aran fleet was hastily assembled, which is an interesting thing to consider with those Bravosi warships. Like, they knew the dragon or a dragon or several dragons. They didn't know at first who was coming for them, but they knew the Targaryens would come for them. And they figured that ships would be involved. So this must have happened pretty quickly because this was this battle that we're about to describe Probably the first battle of the war outside of the battle between Aegon, Oris, and the lords of Maidenpool and Duskendale that ganged up on him. Because this apparently happened around the same time Aegon's forces were ambushed while wa marching up the God's Eye. So, quite possibly the first major battle of the war, which is interesting because it's happening at Gulltown, which is where the first major battle of Robert's Rebellion was at Gulltown, because mm. the Lord of the Vale, you know, uh, rather the Lord of, Lord Grafton, sided with King Aerys and was not going to allow Robert to leave the Vale, or take a ship to get to the Stormlands to rally his forces, and uh, they had to fight a battle to to unlock Gulltown for the Rebellion side, which they of course did, and Robert established himself as a, a warrior that people would want to follow, and and that only. Uh, in a way, Grafton's obstinance made things worse on his own side because it allowed Robert to prove how great he was. People was like, "Wow, Robert's amazing!" Let's like rally more people <laughs> to his side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't he? Shouldn't didn't want him to prove himself. But anyway, how, how bloody was that battle? How it was pretty was bad. That battle? Yeah, yeah, it was bad. It was bad. Apparently, like N Ned's memory of it, if I recall correctly, was yeah. Robert was one of the first men over the walls, and oh no, it's Lord Godric Borrell who who describes it to Davos. Now that I think of more about it, yeah, it was it was. It was a, a close thing, I think. Maybe maybe not close in terms of the rebels almost lost, but 
it was a lot of close combat, a lot of hand to hand, a lot of fighting on the walls. I guess I wondered how much it was just superficially he needed to go against Robert, but mm. wasn't really trying that hard to stop him. Yeah, but might have to look into that a little more. Even if that was the case, all the men in the battle might not realize that. So that's true. Yeah. So those twelve Ravosi warships, whatever, they must have had at least enough time to to sail over. Um, having given more time, Bravos might have sent a larger detachment. Um, maybe if if some more scouting had been done, but apparently there just wasn't a lot of time. Now, as well as when we're thinking about the Valarians, you might be thinking of again of the Sea Snake and this, this giant fleet that he had. But that's the largest the Valarian fleet ever was. So don't picture that. Picture that, but way smaller. Not small. But way smaller. They were formidable in this era, but not at their at their peak, which they were in the dance era. So this would be a substantial force, but it wouldn't be the kind that would overwhelm the Aaron's, even though they have a hastily assembled fleet. What do, when you hear a hastily assembled fleet, do you assume conscriptions that they would take some merchant vessels and say, "Hey, you need to fight for us"? I mean, because that often is the case in in medieval style combat, like local ships are, t- are conscripted. We've seen a lot of cases. Even, even John Snow conscripts merchant ships to send to Hardhome. You know, so I hadn't thought about it honestly. I thought of just smaller, weaker ships. That's what I thought in my mind. I didn't consider that you might just. Where do those smaller, weaker ships come from? Yeah. Well, I thought that they would build them. Okay, but but maybe that's even not. You I can't even build a ship build that them. hastily. Yeah. yeah, so it probably is just. Whatever ships you can get, just local fishermen, probably yeah. In the same way that you just come into town and someone's working on a farm, you're like you're in the army now, you know, like bring your rake or whatever. They Mm -hmm. might just get the fishermen and say you're in the navy now. Bring your ship, and you just don't have a choice. You're not really equipped for it, but uh, yeah, (laughs) yeah. But probably hastily means what's the word I'm looking for? More likely to die. More, yeah, more yeah. destruction involved. More, yeah. more damage to the village that you're coming from. More, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's interesting how this battle plays out. The navies are going to come together and have their engagement, and then later Visenya is going to come in. You almost wonder why it didn't start that. Why doesn't Visenya just go out in front and just torch the entire Aaron fleet, or at least enough of it to make the rest give up? But that's not what happened. Now. Demonstrating the power of the dragons was part of the overall plan of the conquest. And remember, this is one of the first battles. So maybe they're just like, okay, we want to make sure everyone knows we're going to make our statement here, like we're going to eventually do at Heron Hall and some of these other places, quite possibly. Eventually, they're a little more, they hold back a little more and only blow things up when they really have to. So maybe that's the strategy. They're just blow up as many things as possible early on to not have to blow up things later. But they also generally wanted to preserve the people they were conquering so you know maybe they if you just burn a few ships the rest capitulate you get to keep all their ships as it was uh, very little is going to be left after this battle on either side maybe they didn't realize how destructive it would be that's possible maybe it's not the example they want to set because they're not mm. facing navies from the other sides right mm, the only yeah. other naval force is the ironborn which they're making a demonstration through heron hall so yeah huh it's possible. The other possibility is there's just fog, and they couldn't like the dragon mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to yeah. see, and the ships yeah. are advancing, and they just once they get close to each other, then they can start fighting. And yeah, I, I can kind of see they wanted to prove the power of their navy. They wanted to make a statement, uh, and maybe it was even Lord Valarian himself. Who, who I was going to say that. maybe they wanted to give some credit to the other people in the army to show the know, strength of the, the vassals. Navy. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point because they don't want to just be all about the dragons. I mean, that might be sufficient, but showing the power of their allies 
even aside from showing the power or whatever, like they want to actual give actual, I can't think of the word, autonomy is not quite the word, mm. word, but they want the people under them to feel like they matter. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And in, in this sense, it might be, it might, glory might be the wrong and, word, but that might be the right go. word. Yeah. Yeah. Glory. Especially in their realm. Like, the, yeah. This is the naval battle. You're the naval guys. Okay. You know, do your thing. You know, yeah. Don't just come in here, come in here and torch all the ships and then what, what do I do? You know, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of odd to think I want to fight, but that is a correct Westerosi mindset to, to be considering, considering, uh, given how often that is the case. And another one, Nina brings up the a common refrain that we should always be considering. Maybe they're just worried about maybe those ships had some scorpions on them or some actual anti-dragon weaponry. Mm. That does exist, even though you know, there's very little of it in Westeros at this point. Targaryens don't know that. They don't know that some scorpions weren't thrown together. And, and they're being extra cautious. You really, really, really don't want to lose a dragon. Really, really, really don't want to lose one. As long as they have them, their power is intact. As we saw much later, once the dragons are gone rebellions become way more common and eventually the Targaryen power fails. And if the Aarons have teamed with the Bravosi, they may have or care more about dragon ah, defenses. Ah, excellent right? point. They yes. may have given him some scorpions say, all right, you're going to need this. <sighs> and if point. we're right at all about Aegon having done some intelligence work, you might have been aware of that. So. Yeah, that's a really good point because the Bravosi would have more knowledge and more care and more thought put into mm. the dragons and dealing with them so yes that's a very very good point that's what i'm here for <laughs> <laughs> well regardless of what drove the plan regardless of why they did it the way they did it did not work out <laughs> <laughs> the the timeline isn't exactly clear like i said but it seems like it happened really quickly they sent their ships the ships engaged the Aaron fleet and yeah uh, it was apparently a close battle Maybe that creates yet another parallel with the last storm because the battle of the last storm was very close. There was likely a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat, ships getting very close to each other, men boarding other ships. A lot of ships were captured, which is usually how that's done, you know, in, in a naval engagement is one ship boards the other and they take it over and then it becomes their ship and you just change what flag is flying from it to indicate it's changed teams it's not it's not like a a person in yeah. a battle like i've changed sides well how do i indicate that you know yeah. like it's hard enough to tell whose side people are on sometimes without without when they're not wearing uniforms or whatever but even when they're wearing uniforms it can be, yeah it's true you get all muddy and covered in yeah, yeah who and knows? from a distance it's hard to see and on and on yeah so just a pi picture it as best as you can ships coming together, crashing together, sometimes sinking, people in the waves being pulled out and rescued, crossbows and bows shot from up close and far away, javelins thrown, torches probably hurled from one to the other, maybe uh, other fire tools like to set the other ships on fire besides the, the dragon, which is going to enter the battle in a minute here. Lots of chaos and just... Cats and dogs living together. <laughs> Mass hysteria. Yes. And by the way, why were the cats and dogs on the ships in the first place? They do not help at all in it's this. part of the mass hysteria. Yeah, that's right. That's just <laughs> evidence of, of things falling apart is the inclusion of cats and dogs on the ships. So, like I said, yeah, the, the last storm battle, they almost lost. Like, it came down to Meraxes saving the day, in a sense. But here, they actually did lose. Well, the Navy lost. Yeah. Lose it. It's def kind of up for debate whether they lost, lost. 
I would argue that they no one won. It was maybe that's what I was gonna say. They, they maybe they didn't lose. They didn't win. They, maybe they didn't win, but the Aaron's didn't really lose either, right? Yeah. So it was yeah. So here's what actually happened. Let's summarize. Everyone lost. Yeah, everyone. <laughs> yeah, everyone lost. A third of the ships Targaryen ships were lost. Another third, almost a third, was captured. The other, roughly a third, got away. And Lord Damon was among the dead. And we don't know if if his ship sank or was captured, which adds to the interest of what happened with his son Corlys if he was there because if he was if his ship sank then that argues for him not being on that ship <laughs> and so the Targaryens do what they do with Dragonflame Visenya said okay well we lost um, reset and burned the whole fleet which probably includes the ships they just captured <laughs> and those conscripted ships and even her own men that were captured so that's pretty rough. That's yeah. pretty brutal. That's like, wow, ah, nasty. So a lot of people that didn't want to be there, a lot of people that had been her allies a minute before, think a little bit about that dude who gets stepped on in, <laughs> by uh, Caraxes, House the Dragon. Yeah. Except that Damon probably didn't even know that guy was there. <laughs> yeah. He probably would have done it anyway. He might have done it anyway. Although yeah. that might have been easy to just like land 10 feet over. He yeah. might not have done it anyway, but... But yeah, he could, yeah, like why would we bother squishing? If he could him? easily avoid it, you know, yeah. yeah. But he didn't know he was there. The dragon's in control. He's like not, he can't give a precise, it's not like a helicopter where he can kind of control exactly where it lands, you know? Uh, so, so that's pretty ruthless, pretty brutal, and, uh, but not atypical of Visenya. Visenya is pretty brutal, pretty ruthless. And part of what makes her interesting. So, yeah, I think we'd call this a stalemate. But she made it a stalemate. It had been a loss. And yeah. just with one, you know, a- afternoon on Vagar, just turned that into an, turned that thing into an even Steven. And it's a pretty big loss, though, for them. I mean, it's a pretty big loss on both sides. Like, losing your navy, or most of your navy, It if they wanted to make a statement about the power of their navy, well, that backfired, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and and so but they they still showed the power yeah. of the dragon though. <laughs> yeah, they showed the power of the dragon, and it backfires showing the power of the navy. But it's even worse because they don't have this navy to capture either, right? They're yeah. they're down their navy and the navy they thought they were gonna get, and so it's bad. I, I was wondering, uh, what WWAD? What would Aegon do? Uh, would he have also burned that down? Like he may have recognized it's what we have to do. But I wonder if he would have done. An, burnt some outside ships or put more care into burning the right ships or waited till a different moment when he could have a second drag i i don't i don't even know but uh it seems like an awful result <laughs> I, I agree with you there and i want to throw this out there as something to consider for the rest of the episode which is visenya's personality in light of what happens and in light of the decision she makes versus what she may have discussed with her brother and sister as to the best way to handle some of these scenarios. Because there is going to be a time here, shortly, where she does go to confer with Aegon and Rhaenys, and then return. And her methods are a lot gentler. And I wonder if that was something they discussed, something Aegon ordered her to do, or strongly implied needed to be done, or if left to her own devices, she might have burned the eerie or something like yeah, here in Hollywood. Yeah. like, well, we may as well do the same thing here. But when she comes back, yeah, she's a little, she's a little more diplomacy. She's a little more subtle, uses more of the, the carrot than the stick while the stick is still there. You know, so I, I really wonder, it's very interesting if, if, if the conquest ever hits TV or is more is written about it or whatever, if we ever get more on this, the character development happens. If we see that, I would guess that that's going to be a 
part of it. Like how how to manage how to manage their personalities and what they want to do versus what is actually the best strategy for taking the kingdom. I can't see a lot of ways that might have gone, right? I can imagine in the first place they talked about what if we lose this battle? Yeah. And I want to believe that they wouldn't have been so arrogant like that won't happen. Don't worry about it. I feel like they would have yeah. gone deep enough to have a backup plan or follow up, you know. And and if they did, I can imagine Aegon saying, you know, just come back here. But maybe he said burn it all. Like maybe she was calmer in the first place. Yeah. Maybe he ordered her to burn it all. And so she did and came back and Aegon's like, ah, I guess we should have done so that. Well. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, no, I'm not going to burn the Eerie like you said. I think I can do it my way. I'm trying to give her benefit of the doubt. Sure, it, it could sure. be the other way for sure. But And this is, again, we have to reiterate that this was the first major battle. So the Targaryens getting off in their this long conquest and it starts off with a setback and it's like, well, this is the opposite. We were trying to make a statement, trying to prove how strong we are. And just, ah. so that might be why she just like had to torch that just to say from her perspective, like, well, we can't, this can't, we can't have that spreading. So it has to look a draw is not great, but at least it demonstrates how powerful Vagar mm-hmm. is. And it's the, be- it's better than loot an outright loss. They could maybe present her characters being, is that being like a tough decision? She yeah. sat with guilt for the rest of life, or maybe she's just a more of a wild card baby. Or, yeah, it's you like, know, well, she's <laughs> sorry, soldiers that were just on my side a minute yeah. ago. I'm gonna have to burn y'all now yeah. just because the that, politics call for it. You know, like I yeah. say that jokingly, but I and you know I'm making a sunny reference, which they put stuff in a humorous light. But maybe I could see the show maybe putting it in like a darker light. Like maybe she struggles with bipolar disorder or something. Mm-hmm. Her character is this tragic, you know. Interesting. Uh, struggle through her life of how to manage her emotions and when she's suddenly thrust into battles with the power of a dragon like it must be very interesting (laughs) yeah yeah well and consider magor is her son too so a lot of what we look at is like well maybe magor was just like this but he she's her his advisor for a lot of his life and he he notably struggles when she dies like after she's gone his reign notably gets sloppier advisor and also genetic source you know to whatever degree mental disorders might travel through hereditarily that could be a factor absolutely Um, i had one other thought um if uh i wonder how this might have affected Aegon when it came to heron hall i wonder if he's a little more judicious Mm. we talked a lot about the idea of how he didn't totally ruin heron hall yeah maybe he's like all right we totally ruined that fleet yeah maybe we make the point here at this castle but don't totally destroy i wonder if he became more reserved himself after this fleet was destroyed so that effectively stalled the campaign the targaryens not only weren't particularly willing to try to get an army into the vale through the mountains they didn't really have one at this point either it was it was sent elsewhere they had it it was just used elsewhere and they didn't have much of one. It might have right. been hard to get that army through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and without a fleet, well, the only option would be to bring in the dragons and just burn things. That, that's really their only move at this point. So, they unwilling to do that. They just didn't, they did other stuff. Also, seeing that the seeing the destruction of the Aaron fleet and that they were in a war with House Targaryen, which clearly was going to be a big deal, especially how it was unfolding elsewhere. The sister men, the people of the three sisters, those islands in the bite, north of the Vale and south of the north, rose in revolt and crowned Marla Sunderland as their new queen. They, I guess, figured it would be quite a while before the Aarons could field a navy again. It takes a while to build a fleet. And since the dragons were such an obvious presence by this point, 
I kind of wonder, did did they hope to be considered separate from the Vale under the Iron Throne? No, actually. <laughs> they expected true independence. They were fighting for to be completely independent nation of the Three Sisters, even within Westeros, even under this new got a realm that's being built by the Targaryens. Like we're going to make unite everyone into one realm. Like, actually we're going to be independent us, our little three islands. Like, so this was bold. I want to say, I don't want to go quite so far as to call it dumb. Cause I don't know everything that was going on. You know, there might be some other factors here, but it seems extremely ambitious and hard to pull off. I mean, naive, maybe, maybe naive. Yeah. 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 Dumb is too far. I but think. cause it may have even been smart. They might've had like an angle that we're not worth the fight or they yes. won't really care or you know, things like that. I can see. So, but it, but it turns out they, not only do they us underestimate the dragons, but the veil and the North, that's probably what they didn't see. Eventually it's going to, the North is going to get involved but at this time, the North is just another kingdom that Aegon has claimed that has yet to submit. So at the beginning of everything, they it, it seems to me that they took a different view of how this was going to go. Yeah, they they yeah. maybe thought that Westeros was going to tear itself apart with this, this conquest. And a lot of these realms, a lot of w- what just happened would happen elsewhere, which is both sides annihilating each other. They saw the two navies destroy each other and mm-hmm. may have thought that would happen more and more and more. And with if that's going to keep happening, then their little... Three islands will get left alone. They can be independent. Gives them time to build up some strength. And by the, the time someone think about comes it, for like, them, being islands, you need a navy and an army to come get them. Yeah. And so right now, the navies are fighting the dragons. Like, who's gonna come get us? <laughs> <laughs> and there, and it'd been a long time since someone had brought na- armies there. And that uh, it was the North and the Vale had both done that. And that was so long ago. They probably thought, well, now we can, you know, now we can throw throw the yoke off. Now things have changed. You know, we. Let's, it's kind of like the North throwing off the Iron Throne, like under Rob, getting their all their verve and energy. And like, we can do it. We can do it, you know, and may not be a good idea, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. Also, there's the matter of, oh, Aegon and his two sisters. We're the three sisters. <laughs> We've got one more. We got a whole nother sister. <laughs> uh, Nina writes, yeah, like kind of like you said, it's maybe not as foolish as it seems. Like Balon Greyjoy's rebellion against Robert was a lot dumber in her mind because he, he was gambling on the new realm, not supporting Robert, which was silly. They had clearly supported him during the rebellion, right? Like during the rebellion against Ares, like they rose against the Targaryens and followed that guy like happily. Like he had all this charisma and they were like, so what was he thinking that they, that not, charisma was just gone? You know, not just that, like what happens if he becomes independent of the, of, of Robert or the seven kingdoms, then he starts attacking Casterly Rock, attacking the West. Yeah. Well, they're going to attack back. Like, so the West <laughs> is like, well, we're definitely going to stay. Like, <laughs> like, getting free, even if he gets free of them, it still just means a battle somewhere else or someone else. And that person still wants it. You know, even if, even if like the dominoes fall and Castle Rock's like, all right, fine, the West is leaving the Seven Kingdoms too. And we're coming for you, Balon. <laughs> you know, like, it's still not. Yeah. So they may have been hoping for the end result of the war to make Westeros weaker to maybe even revert to smaller kingdoms rather than to become one big kingdom. Like the, because of that, that is what started to happen when some of these bannermen were called. We saw that happen in stormlands when the stormlands call the banners, pirates and raiders attack mm-hmm. when the veil calls its banners, the three sisters goes into, you know, goes into rebellion. So what's going to happen elsewhere. They may have thought more of that would happen. Like uh, some 
house in the reach might revolt or some other house in, in what happens in Dorne or like the Iron Islands. Like you said, there's plenty of possibilities. The Riverlands is not well allied to Heron. They follow them because they have to. So there's a lot of things that could, could break free. So they may have just been a little too optimistic about what they would thought would happen. And they were at least right about one thing, that they would not be a high priority, that no one would come for them in the short term. This will not be resolved until after Aegon's real, quote-unquote, coronation. He's already been crowned by Visenya at the Blackwater, but when he gets crowned at Old Town, when that happens, this still will not have been dealt with. So we'll be coming back to this uh, a little bit later in our coverage of the conquest and of, of a fire and blood in general. Presumably, they went back to their old ways, which is false lights, wrecking, and piracy. You know, that, that, that thing where they put up mm-hmm. lighthouses and draw people into the rocks. places aren't safe. And, yeah. mm-hmm. But they might not have, because if they wanted to become an independent, legitimate state, it doesn't look it's like, yes, we're an independent pirate state. Like, that's mm-hmm. not legitimate. <laughs> that would, mm-hmm. That's not a good way to keep people from coming for you. Like, if you're trading and doing that, gives you a chance. But if you're doing this... Yeah, people are going to come for you. But eh. it's kind of like I was just saying about Balon. Like, okay, fine, you're independent, but still everyone wants to get you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're just going to make war on everyone. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, and these these folk are a lot less powerful than the Iron Islands. <laughs> so yes, Valus Interruptus. Since mm-hmm. the campaign was stalled, Visenya moves south to Crackclaw Point. Let's take a look at uh, Crackclaw Point on the map here. Uh, Cracklaw Point is often maybe not overlooked, but looked down on by the other regional powers. So it's kind of normal for them to feel overlooked or left out because war is raging all around them. Different kingdoms are doing different things and, and they're just sitting there twiddling their thumbs. Not that they want to be involved in the war, but they don't want to be looked on as a backwater. They don't want to be looked down on. Pride matters a lot in Westeros. I mean, pride matters a lot in general, I suppose. But especially in a time like this, and this state of affairs had been going on for so long. So Visenya, she comes in, and this is what I was talking about. Like, maybe maybe something changed about her approach, because she came in, and she was the diplomat. She didn't apparently make any threats, at least not direct ones, no. maybe implied ones. Yeah. I'm sure there were implied threats. Just just Vagar being there is an implied threat. You don't even have to say anything, right? And she treated them with honor, though. For a conqueror, you know, I mean, there's still some I'm better than you vibes when you're mm-hmm. <laughs> expecting someone to kneel, but it paid huge dividends in the long run for House Targaryen. Now, the Cracklaw Point is not part of the Vale, but it does occupy the region immediately between the Vale and the burgeoning Crownlands, which it did become a part of. So, you know, it's like a buffer state between a major kingdom and the heart of Targaryen rule, which is, of course, King's Landing, or would be. <laughs> it's not there yet. Now, Cracklaw is not a valuable region in terms of wealth or manpower but they would make for a significant enemy if they were an enemy because it's a region like the neck which is really swampy and hard to traverse the locals have a big advantage there it's similar to dorn except that the, the climate's a lot different but it's in that the terrain itself is part of the enemy and mm-hmm. it's intrinsic to their defense and how they live and it's deadly an invader has to deal with a lot so they're not a threat to expand. They're not a threat to conquer outwards, right? They're not going to, oh no, the, the Lord of Cracklaw Point is making war on them. Like, that's just never happened. They're too small, too unpowerful. But anyone passing by, like merchants, ships, like if that region isn't settled, you'll have raiders, you'll have piracy, you'll have bandits. 
And you don't want to have to go in there <laughs> to settle that because their terrain is terrible. You don't want to have to send a dragon in there. So having it as a really loyal base was hugely important for them. It's just enabled the Targaryens to move on and do other stuff. And they have new vassals, House Celtigar. Uh, well, they're not new vassals for the Targaryens, but it's a new location for them to be. And Claw Isle is just right there off the coast of Crackclaw Point. So it's also, you know, close to one of their most important vassals. Claw Isle on the map here, you can see that proximity. So however Visenya did it, it was very well done. <laughs> she did a great job of it. It was like apparently bloodless. So as we've been questioning whether or not she has a light touch, well, she clearly has that mode. She has the potential for it. Yeah, she clearly knows how to operate like that. Whether it's her default mode, whether she wants to do this or not is different is is impossible to suss out at this time, but she clearly can. She's clearly capable. Uh nevertheless, uh she's brutal elsewhere. So it's a like you said, it's hard to tell what kind of person she really is. So consider this line spoken by that paragon of crackclaw wisdom and history. Nimble Dick Crab. Aeon sent his sisters up to Crackclaw, that Vicinia. The lords had heard O'Haran's end. Being no fools, they laid their swords at her feet. The queen took them as her own men, and said they'd owe no fealty to Maidenpool, Crab Isle, or Duskendale. Don't stop them bloody Celticars from sending men to Eastern Shore to collect his taxes. If he sends enough, you come back to him. Elsewise, we bow only to our lords and the king. The true king. Not Robert and his ilk. Tuh. There was crabs and burns and bogs with Prince Rhaegar on the trident, and in the King's Guard too. A hardy, a cave, a pine, and three crabs Clement and Rupert and Clarence the Short. Six foot tall he was, but short compared to the real Sir Clarence. We're all good dragon men up Crack Clawway. Up Crack Clawway. I like how he calls it Crab Isle. It's Claw Isle, but he's, he's got such contempt for the Celtigars <laughs> that he doesn't even call the name properly. Like, I like that. It may have been a, like a re- legitimate mistake the way it was written, but it works really well. It's like, it's like he doesn't even care. <laughs> he's, that's, that's how he feels about this, the Celtigars. So there's a lot more we can say about that quote. That thing is packed with potential analysis what it says about the place and the people and the history of the king's guard just that's a lot of different king's guard from there but it just goes to show visenya formed the king's guard and a lot of people joined the king's guard from this region not only because they want to be part of this targaryen regime they're proud to join it they're proud to be have been asked to be a part of it and they're proud to join the institutions that come with it he said that this is packed with a lot. Almost everything Nimble Dick Crab said was packed with a lot. <laughs> I bet when George came out with this character, he's like, oh, this is going to be good. I got yeah. a lot of fun with he's this He's like, guy. I got a winner yeah. this time. Yeah. I, I, I really, he did it again, George. Pats himself <laughs> on the back. Like, good job. <laughs> you, did it again. you did it again, old man. Yeah, so it's hard to imagine a better result here from what Visenya did at, over the long term and the short term. Nina says her approach played perfectly to the history of the region. On Crackclaw Point, the native first men had strongly resisted the invasion of the Andals. And while a number of petty kings had tried to impose their writ in the area, the Crackclaw Point natives had always refused to bend the knee. They were proud of their independence and would only take direction and leadership from their local heroes. So Visenya wisely embraced that spirit of independence by giving the families of Crackclaw Point freedom from the prior lords who tried to dominate them she elevated them to the same status as the ones who had constantly been trying to dominate them. She said, no, you're, you are officially on the same level as them, the Darklands, the Celtigars, the, et cetera, all the other ones that had always looked down on them. So that's a huge thing. She brought them up. She spoke to their pride in a way 
that elevated them rather than all these others who are too proud to step down and avoid destruction at the hands of Dragonflame. They were proud in a different way that enabled them to say, hey, we are good enough. We're honored by your selection. We're honored by this promotion. So it's like two sides of the pride coin, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting. Like one side, you've got the Lord saying, we have kings and queens who are too proud to bend the knee. But at Cracklaw, they're proud to bend the knee. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so that's really neat, I think. And, and it shows like these two very differing scenarios. The veil, one of the proudest places in the entire kingdom. I mean, this is the heart of Andal chivalry and where the Andal, Andals first came. I mean, arguably that's the reach in terms of the heart of chivalry, but it started in the veil. They came over in the veil first. That's where the Andals first landed. So there's a lot of. Uh, origin stuff is rooted Claim there. to fame. Yeah. yeah. Consider what we probably have the best parallel for Crackclaw Point and Visenya is John telling Stannis how to treat the, the hill clansmen in the north. He's like, just, you know, go there. This visit is a know, right? Yeah. I'm going to give her credit because this is such a good point. Yeah. It is. You <laughs> honor them and, you know, praise their daughter. He's like, well, I... Praise their daughters and eat some porridge for 3,000 men? Yeah, of course I'll do that. He's like, <laughs> he's like, if it's really that many men, then this is clearly, he'll definitely do that. And it's pretty similar. Visenya is probably thinking the same thing. It's like, well, I, do I have to praise their daughters and eat their porridge and we'll win them? Yeah, I'll okay. do that. Yeah. Sure. Like, no problem. <laughs> I don't even have to burn any of them. But can I burn one of them? Can I burn? Maybe let me, let me burn one castle. Come on. Like, no, there'll be Wait, plenty of time for Bernie. Or Melisandre. <laughs> <laughs> the add to the parallel? Melisenia. <laughs> Melisenia. Uh, yes, it's their one person. That's right. That's right. You heard it here first, folks. Visenya is Melisandre. That's a dangerous mashup. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's a lot of fire. That's too much fire. Too much. So they couldn't give up their crowns because they had them for so long, but these folk didn't have crowns and had been over overlooked for so long. So elevating them was such a great thing. They were, they were hungry for respect, and Visenya gave it to them. Yeah. Very neat. I really like that part. It's it's not even part of the war with the veil, but it happens in between. This is the best time for us to talk about it. So the veil may have been wondering, like, well, they're going to come back for us. They're not done just because we threw off that first thrust of their ships. They're going to build more ships. They still have their dragons. They're busy yeah. fighting elsewhere, but we know they're going to come back. So they continued to mount defenses, probably tried to build new ships, may have sought new allies, maybe like, hey, Bravos, you want to help us again? And like, thanks for those 12 warships. Sorry about those all being burned, but you know what's at stake here. The same logic that, sent, that caused you to send those ships the first time, well, we still need that help. We, the, the same things still apply. However, more evidence of the power of the Targaryens was mounting. <laughs> for example, the Vale got further reprieve, at least they may have thought it was reprieve. At the least it was time, right? Visenya received word that she was needed. Her brother, the king, had learned that the Reach and the West had joined forces in mustering the largest army ever seen in Westeros. 55,000 soldiers with 600 lords in this army. This is, of course, the build-up to the Field of Fire. They would need to be made an example of. <laughs> they would also need to be just defeated as well as made an example of. And Vagar would be needed for that great example. All three dragons would be needed for that. So Visenya paused... Her participation in the campaigns of the East, she was done with Crackclaw Point by then, or done enough, and wasn't ready to return to the Vale because 
Well, they didn't have a navy. They didn't have the means to do anything other than burn things. So she flew to Stony Sept, was reunited with her siblings, and maybe some more strategy was discussed, maybe some planning, some reconnoitering, like, well, this is what worked, this is what didn't. I really wonder what was said in those meetings. This is the first time they had gotten together after leaving for the initial destinations, their initial targets. Now, of course, next up is the Field of Fire here, which, of course, we'll cover in a separate episode. That is uh, the event that's, of course, being built up right here. Now, after the Field of Fire, well, she heads back. Uh, She took an arrow to the shoulder at the Field of Fire, and since she wasn't gone that long, it was probably still a wound. It probably hadn't still healed by the time she got back to the Veil, which is... Didn't matter, <laughs> but it, <laughs> it may have annoyed her a little, you know, but it just goes to show that's like the only wound any of the Targaryens took that we know of in the entire conquest. So Minus Dorn. Was that? Minus Dorn. Right, my, right. Uh, <laughs> arguably, that's not part of the conquest, but yeah. either way, that's, yeah, that certainly counts one way or the other. <laughs> Queen Shara probably hoped for more time than this. She's like, okay, good. Visenya's going, leaving for a while, you know, maybe, hopefully she dies. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> hopefully Aegon dies and then they won't hopefully come back dragon at all. dies. Yeah, hopefully something happens. It's like all they got was a shoulder wound, like out of all that. Damn. So it, I wonder too, maybe if on some level the, the the veil or other entities thought, well, once they get three or four kingdoms, that'll be enough and they'll leave us alone. You know, that could have <laughs> yeah. been an angle they were hoping for too. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so even though not a lot of time had passed, like she probably still had her shoulder wound, the field of fire didn't take that long, uh, you know, given what a monumentous event it was. It wasn't, you know, a long, months long campaign or anything. So the evidence was becoming, if it wasn't already obvious, that fighting the dragons or even a single dragon was foolish. Even though they had lost the naval battle, everything about the dragons suggested, yikes. Let's not fight another naval battle. Yeah. <laughs> So Heron may have been naive because he hadn't yet seen the dragons in action and none of the other lords had really either for the most part. But after this, now there was the field of fire. There was Heron Hall. They couldn't claim to be naive anymore. Nor, I mean, why would they? they? They know. They have all this evidence. And then Rhaenys made an example out of Argilac. So by the time Visenya returns to the, <laughs> to the Vale, there's been the field of fire. There's been the conquest of the Stormlands. There's been the, the burning of Heron Hall. And by then, Torrin Stark had surrendered. I was going to say, and the North, too, right? The North had surrendered, yeah. So the dominoes are falling. Visenya had burned yeah, their fleet. There's just so much. <laughs> and even without all that, I don't know when to jump ahead too far, but when the dragon's like right there with your son, <laughs> you know, like that's, that, it could have happened in another order, I think. Yeah. For example, if what happened in Dorne happened now, where they continuously failed and the Dornish like showed a strategy that might actually work. You might have seen other regions maybe try to, I mean, not that they're well equipped to do like the Dornish did, but they might have at least shown that there was a way. I, no one had really beaten them except sort of in this naval battle or given them more than a setback. You know, if you flip it around point. too, if this had happened in another order, if she had landed there and took the sun and they gave it that, that, that might not have set the same example to everyone else. They probably still That's have to true. fight the field of fire or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. And the field of fire, something like that. Not like winning the veil would have eliminated the large numerical advantage that the West and, and the Reach 
were banking on. Yeah. They, adding the Veiled Soldier to the mix, still they would have been badly outnumbered. It doesn't give quite the same notch to yeah. your belt that makes everyone want to back off that Heron Hall did of the Field of Fire. Like, you guys lost your fleet up there. She only surrendered because you had your son, her son captive. You know, like, yeah. it, it would be easier to blow that off. So, in a way, it maybe is better for that to have come later, even if they could have got that sooner. Yeah. Without the other victories before the Veil, it probably is better for it to have come later. Visenya's also, Nina makes a note here, that Visenya remarks how it may have been lucky for them that that the King of the Rock capitulated the way he did, because Casterly Rock, like, how could they have, what could they have done there? That would have been a really bad siege, a really time-consuming, difficult scenario. I mean... It's never been taken. A dragon can't burn. You can't burn the rock. Like, I think they could have eventually taken it. Yeah, oh, yeah. It would have so. taken a lot longer and caused a lot more casualties and maybe in the end not have been worth it. Yeah, you know? maybe not. Yeah, so so Visenya says, ooh, that was, yeah, I'm glad they surrendered because, ooh, don't want to have to deal with that. <laughs> and at that point, Torin hadn't surrendered yet. So at the Field of Fire, Torin, Torin didn't surrender till after the Field of Fire when he marched his army down, arrived at Hall, saw it burning and saw... That Aegon already had men from the Reach on his side and all this other stuff. So that decision was separate. We'll obviously discuss that separately as well. But every kingdom had a different set of circumstances to work with. Mm. But, and as we've said, the different ordering of events may have changed the way they perceived what their potential to defeat the dragons were. But as it played out, the evidence levied against or available to Shara was that Pretty much no one could beat these guys. Like, no one had done anything more than minor setbacks. You know, a wound to the shoulder. You know, obviously Rhaenys and the failures in Dorne were years away still. So that it just didn't look like anyone could win. And the one person maybe they could have held out, the King of the Rock, didn't. Didn't try. So, <laughs> that might have been, by the way, something that the Veilmen and the Sistermen were banking. I was like, oh, it's going to take them forever to subdue the West. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, right back. <laughs> yeah. It was like, oh, right. it didn't take forever. To, damn it. <laughs> like, we really thought that was going to take forever. So I didn't think of another thing, too, by the way, the idea of, like, burning these castles. They were going to burn the veil from the inside, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, we can't do that. Like, our castle is a lot more vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. And it's so pretty. It will never look the same if yeah. it's blackened. And that is also <laughs> part of their claim to fame, their pride, or whatever is that castle. You know, it is sort of the, I don't know, the culmination of their empire if you will they're lo- into that they know? stand to lose a lot by surrendering they stand to lose a lot more by not surrendering yeah 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 because yeah he could just if that cast if their castle is destroyed then what do they have like well yeah. they'll, they'll never get back on top you know uh he might replace them he's like okay well you're not in charge of the veil anymore i'm, I'm appointing the, yeah. the voices or yeah. the the grafton yeah other political precedents have been set too at that point yeah, yeah you've already had people removed and, and they don't want to come out on the wrong side of the, the power shakeup. The churn, as we would call it in the expanse. <laughs> Aegon and his sisters were enabling, enacting a churn on Westeros, and you want to be on the right side of that when it ends. You don't want to die during the churn. So, to summarize all that, Shara had considerably more evidence, especially given that Dorne hadn't happened yet, that the dragons were just, ah, what are we going to do? They didn't, they didn't have new answers. If they had, they may have been consulting the old books, looking for just any kind of answer. How do we deal with the dragon? How did people deal with them in the past? But nothing that came of anything. Nothing substantial. And worse, on top of all that, not only was there the evidence that the dragons were impossible or near impossible to defeat, now the Reach, the Stormlands, the North, these houses are now 
have bent the knee. So the Vale has to face them too. Before they were just facing the Targaryens right. and yeah. their yeah. and their new and their small group of Crownlands allies. It now it's approximately one against one. Now it's one against five or whatever. Now it's so. like half of Westeros is on their side. So they're and they're they're boxed in. The North is is north of them and Crackclaw and King's Landing south of them and the Riverlands south of them. So they're surrounded. And their navy's gone. And their navy, yeah. So it really doesn't look good. <laughs> and. It's almost surprising Dorne didn't bend the knee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, there's another way to think about this. And they're ruling a kingdom is not just beating everyone, making them bend the knee, and everything works out. Magor is proof of that. Magor mm, was able to beat right. everyone in the field until his army no longer would support him. Until everyone had just, the tide had turned, and he was like, well, no one's with me anymore because I've alienated everyone. He had the biggest, baddest dragon. It wasn't enough. He thought it was, arguably. that He may have thought this was enough, but Aegon didn't use his dragon the same way. And this is something we'll be talking about a lot more in the yeah, future quick, with Ysenia and Magor and all that. How many more dragons were there at the time of Magor? Uh, quite a few, but not... But still none that could challenge But none that could Balerion. challenge Balerion. Yeah, there's, there's never been one that could challenge Balerion at full size that in these eras, you know. Even Vagar, when Vagar got as big as she got, wasn't as big as Balerion was. You know, even that is a... Uh, would they challenge him? Say there was one, would they? That's yeah, another that's perspective like. we kind of got from House of the Dragon is like, uh, they have a little bit of their own minds, you know? Yeah, so. they don't, uh, yeah, they don't want to necessarily. Like, <laughs> this is a bad idea. It's like, this is the thing that makes me, gives me ultimate power. It's the thing that gives you ultimate power. We go up against each other. We risk neither of us having this anymore. <laughs> well, uh, I don't mean just that. I mean the dragon Oh, itself. the actual dragon yeah, doesn't want to fight sorry. the other dragon. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, they wouldn't necessarily want to go up against one. That's true. For whether they're scared of it or they have some bond with it or whatever other reason. Yeah, yeah from everything we know about dragons, says they're awfully violent and will we'll fight first, even against larger ones. But that doesn't mean they're all uh, uniformly that way. There's probably some exceptions. Or all the time that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exceptions both in personality and in, in circumstances. Yeah, so... Nina makes a good point that it, it's if you burn too many people, if you burn too many allies and friends, like Magor eventually will do, it has the opposite effect. You have to have a light touch with how many people you burn. <laughs> <laughs> a lighter touch. Yes, or which castles you burn. Yeah, a lighter touch. Ah, good one, good one, yeah. So, that's bad. So, at this point, by the time Visenya's back, the only kingdom still not subject to the Iron Throne were the Veil... Obviously, the Iron Islands, which was in disarray because of the fall of Heron. And though the Reach had been defeated, there was still the matter of Old Town because it didn't show up at the Field of Fire. So it was kind of questionable at this point what their deal was. But it seemed like they were willing to make a peaceful surrender, which they did. Though that's not necessarily what Aegon knew at the time. And of course, Dorne, which we'll obviously deal with separately also. So similar to what we saw early in the conquest, the three Targaryen siblings and their dragons once again split up. Quote, Aegon turned south once again, marching toward Old Town, whilst his two sisters mounted their dragons, Visenya for the Vale of Arryn, and Rhaenys for Sunspear and the Deserts of Dorne. Shara Arryn had strengthened the defenses of Gulltown, moved a strong host to the Bloody Gate, and tripled the size of the garrisons in stone, snow, and sky the way castles that guarded the approach to the Eyrie. So what she may have been thinking, or at least been making motions about, maybe just going through the motions to give her people something to do to show that she was trying to defend the Vale, even if her plan was to have to give up at some point. To say, okay, honor demands that we fight, but uh, 
it doesn't mean we fight to the death. It doesn't mean we go down with the ship like our Navy did. <laughs> it means that we can make an effort to defend ourselves and not look like cowards, but we're going to give up at some point. That might have been in the back of her mind. She, she wouldn't be saying that out loud, probably. But. I wish I could remember what the context was, but at some point in passing, we were talking about the idea that sometimes you fight knowing that you're going to lose, but if you make the fight hard enough, that you have better negotiating power and the, mm. the treaty afterwards. That's right? also potentially You can beat us eventually, but you're going to lose so much doing it, we can demand more now for our surrender. I like that idea because it, it gets back to what we were saying, that Shara was willing to negotiate, willing to compromise. So that may have been on her mind, like, well, what's, the, what's our best angle here? She might be like, okay, we're going to lose something here. We're going to lose our crown maybe, but let's not lose much more than that. Like if the battle on the field, you guys lose thousands of troops, so do we. Yeah. You risk your dragons... Eventually, you burn our castle down. You win, but what did you get? Or let us keep control of X and we surrender right now. Right? Mm. They, see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. all right, all right, fine. We'll surrender right now and give you X because we don't want to have to burn your castle down. You know? Yeah. So I, I kind of think that's it. That, that, that's pretty likely that they, for honor's sake, they had to at least put up a put up a fight. And maybe they just expected that, no, they're never going to subjugate us unless they can bring an army into this region. And we're not going to allow that. We're going to do everything we can to stop them from bringing an army in. An air force alone won't subjugate us. They might have been thinking vaguely like Dorne. They can burn all the castles they want. That's not going to bring us to the, to, to the table. But they didn't know? consider an air force and kidnapping the air. That right? they did not think <laughs> of. You're right. That did not occur to her. Clearly, it didn't occur to her because then this wouldn't, this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> yeah. So think about all that work that was put into boosting the Vale's need, uh, boosting their readiness for whenever the Targaryens came back. And then this is what happens, quote. All these defenses proved useless against Visenya Targaryen, who rode Vagar's leathery wings above them all and landed in the Eyrie's inner courtyard. When the regent of the Vale rushed out to confront her with a dozen guards at her back, she found Visenya with Ronald Aaron seated on her knee, staring at the dragon, wonderstruck. Mother, can I go flying with the lady? The boy king asked. No threats were spoken, no angry words exchanged. The two queens smiled at one another and exchanged courtesies instead. Then Lady Shara sent for the three crowns, her own regent's coronet, her son's small crown, and the falcon crown of mountain and vale that the Aran kings had worn for a thousand years, and surrendered them to Queen Visenya along with the swords of her garrison. And it was said afterward that the little king flew thrice around the summit of the giant's lance and landed to find himself a little lord. Thus did Visenya Targaryen bring the Vale of Arryn into her brother's realm. You remember that Hugh Grant movie, The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill But Came Down a Mountain? Yeah, that's what I think of here. The Vale Boy Who Went Up a King But Came Down a Lord. Yep. But better, because it has mountains and dragons. So, <laughs> yeah, that Hugh Grant movie didn't have any dragons. Not one. Not a single dragon. Boring. Yeah, I don't think there were crowns either. <laughs> so, nice fancy crowns there. Falcon crown of mountain and vale, plus the regent's coronet and the sun, sun small crown. Yeah, gotta be thorough. Gotta give all the crowns over. Like, no, did you, you didn't keep that one crown, did you? No, give me every crown. Bring them all the crowns. Oh, you got another crown hidden under there? Yeah, I know you got another crown there. Like the cowboy, like, turnovers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, one more knife in the back and a gun in a sock. And <laughs> is that the crowns out like, from underneath this their one's, bra. This is styrofoam. <laughs> Where's the real falcon crown? Come on. So the swords of her garrison, is that literal? Like, 
I, you know, the swords of my garrison are yours. Like they are at your command, or is it literal? Like I'm going to add them to the Iron Throne. I assume it's the soldiers of a garrison, but it could be both. Yeah, it could, and that could even be another thing. That Aegon andor Ficinia, or whoever might have might have taken swords, not only to add to the the Iron Throne, however much that was specifically planned out, but at least to temporarily disarm them because it would there might be this moment in the aftermath where they try to it's like we'll surrender now but we're going to take it back in two weeks or whenever they let their guard down so well not so easy <laughs> to take your swords and also they have to spend up some more resources making new swords you know mm-hmm. yeah so, that's true yeah and it just reminds them of just puts them in their place so to speak because yes this is don't don't forget that we're polite we'll rule you with dignity but we're in charge and we get to, we can do what we want and we have to demonstrate that from time to time. It seems you know, like that's the implied. Another angle I didn't take into account, it may or may not have been there, but it sort of applies that they're taking on a responsibility as that's the new true. king too. That's like, true. Mm. You don't have your swords, we will take care of you. We are we're in charge of you, the but we'll also power. take care of you. Yeah, because yeah. that is the heart of the vassal feudal, the feudal vassal relationship there. So. That does make sense, yeah. And that's part of why I'm wondering if it was, like, part of a formal surrender. It's like something you always do. Like, you hand over the crowns and the swords and, yeah. Like, like that's a thing in not so much anymore, but for a long time. And, like, European warfare especially, is, if I understand it, like, when one side surrendered to the other, they would hand over their sword. It would be, like, a, one officer, the commanding officer would hand his sword to the... Yeah victorious commander and often the guy would be like we hand it back as a symbol of okay you're beaten you can have your sword back you know as a way of being polite about it like yeah we just killed all your guys but mm-hmm. you can have your sword back you know <laughs> it's kind of weird in that sense but it is a real world thing of the this the ritual of, of handing ritual, over man. your weapon of, of surrender yeah so the campaigns in the stormlands and riverlands got far more written about them in the book in terms of military action and that's part because there wasn't a lot of military action in the subjugation of the Vale. There was a lot in terms of preparation. Maybe even more. There might have been more preparation. More beefing of defenses. And doing things that just didn't amount to anything. It just that they were all those defenses were just. I'm going to say maybe, but 55,000 troops. I don't know. I think that's mm, the most. <laughs> might be, you might be right about that. Okay. Yeah. Fair point. Fair point. Second most will say. Yeah. Uh, you're probably right about that. Still, it's a lot of a lot of time, more time spent on it, probably. Yeah. yeah. So more waiting, more anxiety of what's going to happen, you know, whereas the, the field of fire was just like, just happened, you know, and same with the Argolak. Like these things were just, the Targaryens sent their letter out, people know they were coming, but they didn't take a, a long time to get there. Are there even 600 lords in the Vale? Yeah, if you, because Lord includes like very small petty lords, lords that would not be worthy lord, of mention. Lord, underlords or whatever. Yeah, they're yeah. called minor lord or petty lord. Still. They're still technically lord, but like the difference between some lords is like they basically have a small village or two whereas yeah. some control you know winterfell <laughs> yeah what was the oh, i can't remember his name in the the sworn sword sir eustace osgrey yeah was yeah. he a lord he had been a lord okay he was demoted <laughs> to a land land owning knight which you can be as well like normally when a, when a knight owns land they're called master okay okay so he's he's the master of of osgrey of Whatever I forget now, I've forgotten the, land, the name, the name of, his of his tower. tower yeah. yeah, but the I feel so ashamed of that because I love those stories so much. <laughs> I, I think I, I I haven't even reread all the books in the main series, but I have reread those books like four oh, times. Nice, so I okay. should know it better. But. <laughs> so yeah, Osgrays uh, is a good example there of, of a of a house that was demoted but still gets to own land. So I think I think you have maybe you. I don't know how land ownership works for like merchants in terms like they're not they're not nobles, but I'm pretty sure they can own land. 
So, I, yeah. So it's it's like a you're holding a title for the king. It's part of the the feudal system versus just a landowner who pays taxes to his lord, and that's different. So yeah, some of these nitty gritty things we might need to bring in someone else to explain some of these things to us. I don't I don't know how all those those low, lower level like day to day things work. Uh, maybe we need Stephen Atwell or someone for that. <laughs> so earlier we used the example of Magor and his inability to understand the psychology of intimidation and dragons properly. As we said, he's pretty brutal about it. And Aegon will later spend much of his reign going from place to place. Like he doesn't sit at King's Landing and, and issue dictates all day. He he went around. He went from court to court showing himself, you know, do, putting in FaceTime, kind of honoring them with his his presence, but also eating all their food because he's bringing a lot of people with him and his dragon. But everyone gets to see Balerion that way. Everyone sees this guy that's there now subject to, and he's their protector. And we say, okay, well, this, this guy looks capable of, of doing what he says, you know, and he wanted to put in his, put in that face time with as many people as possible to make sure they were confident in him to give him, uh, give them that sense to honor them with his presence. Uh, and that's something that Magor doesn't grasp, but Jaehaerys will. And the reason I bring that up now, rather than when we get to those characters, is because of this whole thing with Visenya and Aegon and Rhaenys and who their parents are, right? Rhaenys isn't going to be around to raise Aenys very much. Visenya will be around a lot to raise Magor. And you wonder where, if Jaehaerys just learns these lessons later, he wasn't really, he was raised by Alyssa, you know, his, uh, his mother, Alyssa Velaryon, who was a big, important character. And the daughter of Ethan, by the way, uh, mm, Ethan Valerian. Okay. Yeah. So it's interesting to look at the dichotomy of these different, how, how they rule. Like Aenys, Magor, and Jaehaerys are all going to rule pretty differently. Jaehaerys, best of all, probably learned the lessons of his grandfather, whereas the sons of Aegon did not learn them very well. And maybe that's partly parenting. Maybe that's partly their lessons aren't as easy or power goes to your head. Or I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of it possibilities there. Maybe it's it's too new for the lessons to come to fruition or be established or yeah. be challenged by another method. Um, I also want to point out Viserys and Rhaenyra didn't learn the lessons very well either. Nope, you're like, right. They also had the option of flying around to the other kingdoms on her dragons to make it clear, I'm going to be queen mm, next. Yeah. But they didn't. They, they just didn't. sat in their ivory towers, and when the time came, no one was really ready or so. And that's the common... And a correct, in my opinion, complaint against Jaehaerys is that he was great in terms of managing the lords and peasants and infrastructure, but he was bad with his own family. Mm -hmm. Like, like not just not good, but kind of bad. And that's the big flaw in him is that he did not teach them to rule like he did. Now, to be fair, all this death in his family and other things that happened, there's a lot that went wrong that kind of damaged him as a person it's on also the personal side but still it's also possible he might have gone like a 10-year span of i don't yeah. know this exactly but i can imagine going to 10-year span where he did manage the family well yeah but he ruled for so long yeah that that could ebb and flow and i know. think when he was younger he did a pretty good job like when before his firstborn son the one that actually got older i mean daenerys was his was there well, they had an Aegon first but that baby died at a baby so the first child they had that became an adult was aemon and he was going to be the king and he was the hand and he, everybody liked him and had he not died we probably would there'd probably be a lot less complaints you wouldn't about, have this complaint about how jaharis managed his family yeah. it would still be a complaint but it wouldn't have had a spillover effect on the kingdom the way it did yeah. so it would have been a lot less damaging probably i mean uh, it's not certain but yeah uh 
also wouldn't have been as interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think George would have could have written such a great wonder, character without some flaws. Like that's not it's not very realistic yeah. to have such a perfect person, you know. I wonder if it maybe have got interesting. I mean, I'm really going off a little bit here, but like, say that you had two or three or four generations of Targaryens who managed everything well. What that might have turned into conquest of Essos. Mm, right? too good. Yeah, they managed it just, too well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Instead of just keeping their own stuff together because they keep screwing it up, if they kept it all together well, they might have moved out farther. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. That is. Uh, vaguely like one of the plot lines that's in, in Wheel of Time. If anyone's watching Wheel of Time, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, someone that go a kingdom far to the west that's established by people in the east that comes back to conquer it. And he was like, oh, you established us. Now we're coming back to conquer you. Uh, so part of the reason I veered into this topic is that I'm curious about the plan of submission that Visenya went with. Did she come up with this on her own? Did Aegon suggest it? Was she more of, of mind to burn things and, and make an example of the veil? And they talked it out and were like, no, all you need to do is just this lighter touch. On the other hand, could they have even known this was an option? Could they have known that just flying to the Deary and snagging the boy? Could they? I mean, why not? Like, did, otherwise, we're saying she thought of that on the way. You know, like well, the idea would have been just have as present of that when she scouted out the castle. Okay, maybe, yeah. I want to think that maybe Aegon already did that, but you also think maybe they would have stories. At some point, mm. someone in the Eyrie would have been like, what's this dragon flying around, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but maybe she did. Maybe she realized, like, you know, I think I can land right there. And maybe if she was scouting out consistently, mm. which she may have, she might be like, you know, the boy comes out there at 1 o'clock in the afternoon every day. <laughs> I'm going to snag him. All right. I'm going to land there at 1 o'clock in the afternoon and see what happens, you know. Yeah. She might have come up with it on the fly. Or maybe even Aegon had scouted out and knew that too and told her or told her to find a way out. See what you can do, you know, one way or the other. So I, I think that there's a possibility that the idea came from elsewhere, but I think most likely Visenya just has multiple modes. She knows how to operate in a variety of scenarios and understood that the silken glove with the implied threat is better than the iron gauntlet in this case i just thought another option which okay. we also discussed in the past spies okay yeah spies, maybe someone yeah. told her the boy yeah. comes out every afternoon at one o'clock you can land right here the the archers are looking the other way or or, or i'll distract the archers this day it's possible the eerie is very remote so i wonder how such a message could have been related but I if they've been planning this for entirely. months, if they had a spy on the inside. Yeah, you never know. It's it's absolutely possible. Uh, and there might have been people who wanted it too. Like, let's just say that, you know, after that, those ships were burned, someone in one of those families, like, I have family in the Erie too. I don't want that castle getting burned down. Hey, Aegon. I'll, yeah. I am in charge of the archers at the Erie. Yeah. Da, 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 mm. you know. So Nina prefers the multifaceted version of Visenya than the Aegon or Rhaenys or them conferring led to this decision. Which it still might have, but that doesn't mean she was pushing hard for burning them all. Either way, this is something they could have talked it out and realized this was the best plan, and it may have even been her idea. Regardless, it uh, is maybe arguably a bit lucky that their refusal to surrender didn't go worse for them. Because for a lot of these other nations not surrendering co cost something substantial like they made an example like you either lost your army your castle was burned i mean they did lose their navy which is pretty substantial but yeah. that was at this point that had been months ago and it didn't really hurt them right it didn't hurt, yes it hurt their their constituents their people yeah right so 
it could have gone a lot worse. They they were they were apparently willing to stand up to what was coming at least a little bit, if not more. We don't know. And yeah, it could have gone a lot differently and been really bad. The Aerie might not have shiny white marble. It might be very blackened, <laughs> melty, perhaps. So yeah, Ronald had uh, clearly from the quote about Ronald, like he clearly has no idea what's going on. He's he has no idea there's yeah. some mil- a, con- a conquest going on. He's just like, I want to go for a ride. And if you put yourself in his position, that's pretty awesome. Like <laughs> he much- gets to ride a dragon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's a that's pretty sweet. How much do we know about Ronald down the line? A lot. He'll be around for well, maybe not a lot about his personality, but he's not gonna he's gonna rule for a while. He's not gonna die until after Aegon dies. I, I wonder if he. You know, goes to his grave thinking like, "I love those Targaryens. They let mm-hmm. me ride his dra- their dragon." Or what if he's thinking like, "Man, I am lucky that wasn't worse." Yeah, you know, I yeah. realized they were really kind of taking advantage of me as a kid. I wonder what is a good point. Like at some point, he comes, he processes it. In he's his like, own when his elders are thinking about, it, he's like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> that was a threat." Yeah. <laughs> like it's gonna dawn on him someday. He's gonna wake up and be like, "Whoa." She could have just tossed me off the dragon if she had <laughs> wanted to. My mom was like, they smiled at each other for my benefit. Yeah. But like only one of them was smiling genuinely there. <laughs> and it wasn't my mom. <laughs> it was it was the queen. So, yeah. Uh, so one of the other similarities between Ronald and Robert is they're both murdered. Or, well, sweet Robin hasn't been murdered yet. We just expect it. <laughs> and... Sweet Ronald's murder won't happen while he's still a child. So either Sweet Robin won't be murdered or he'll be murdered while he's a child and Ronald's going to die as an adult. So Is that too much of a story to get into? Yeah, but it we'll get to it at the end of Aegon's reign. It's going to be pretty sad. <laughs> <laughs> now, in this case, when Sweet Robin dies, assuming it does happen, it's going to be... Harold Harding is Harry the heir, right? And he's not even technically an heir, and he has some Aaron in him, right? But in this era, there's plenty of other Aarons. So that's another thing that's very different, is like you take out one Aaron, and all of a sudden it creates this weird succession situation. Not necessarily a crisis, but a, a weird scenario where someone that isn't full, a full-blown Aaron becomes the, uh, the heir. Here, there's just a lot of Aarons, so it's not a big deal. Uh, and this is where Nina points out that this is... Perhaps the biggest red herring of the conquest in terms of foreshadowing for A Song of Ice and Fire, because, like I said at the beginning, a lot of these parallels exist. The parallels aren't going to make sense in in the long term or when you get down to the nitty gritty. Yes, there's a boy king and a boy lord in both cases, uh, but his mother's already dead in the case of the Vale or in case of Sweet Robin. So there's no Shara. There's no equivalent. Lysa's already gone. Littlefinger and Sansa are, are nothing like Queen Shara as, as a whole, you know. Uh, like L- Sansa isn't really looking out for Sweet Robin. It's kind of she kind of seems to understand that he's going to die. She doesn't want it to happen, but she doesn't have any power to really to stop it. She doesn't necessarily like him, <laughs> so <laughs> she's got sympathy, but not a lot of maybe empathy. I don't know. Uh, so uh, it, it's. And of course, there's no equivalent in terms of I don't think Daenerys is going to fly to the top of the Erie and do a similar kind of thing because the Erie is closed already. They've already shut it down yeah. for the winter. No one lives well, there right now. And if it, it does get reopened, if it does get reopened, it'll be after the war against the others is over because the, they can't go back there yeah. until winter's over. Yeah. That's yeah. the whole reason they left is because they leave every time winter happens. So I wonder if maybe there will still be a, a moment 
for a different motivation, you know. Yeah. I can't think of a good one, but it would be such a good, cool parallel. Yeah. A good imagery but to come you up. See you see know? why we, we've reached this conclusion, because it's like, well, yeah. we, we are uh, probably never going to see the Eerie again in A Song of Ice and Fire. Like, we might hear about it, like, in A Dream of Spring. It might come up, but, like, a chapter there? I don't know. It doesn't seem that likely. It seems like something we'll hear about. And yeah. like, whose POV would it even be? Will Sansa go back there? I don't think so. Seems like she'll stay in the North, you know? But who knows? I could easily be wrong. George could write a one-off POV. You never know. I mean, he said he's not going to do big POVs, but a one-off POV. Just, to, But I don't know. This doesn't seem necessary for us to find out what's happening in the Vale after all is said and done. It's not that key of a location. There aren't going to be a lot of characters that we're deeply invested in that are still living there. So yeah, it seems unlikely we'll go back there. At least in winter. Or at least in summer. Uh, maybe we'll definitely spend a lot of time there in the winds of winter because a lot is happening there right now. We've got exciting things going to happen there, but I think in the dream of spring, it won't be much a part of things <laughs> other than as a power, but not as far as a, a location for us to have chapters featured there. Yeah. Be too busy with the other locations. That's for sure. So the campaign in the Vale is unique in that it was one of the first to begin yet one of the last to be completed. It wasn't a protracted siege or a drawn out series of engagements. It was just a matter of circumstances. They paused the campaign and then came back. The dragons were never not a threat, but they had other things to do. And it was a, a way for them to prove their supremacy in a different way. Like, yes, here your castle is in the open and the fire can devastate it. Here, it's way up in the mountains in this remote location, but we can still get to it. Yeah. Whether it's on open ground in the riverlands or way up high in the mountains or deep in the stormlands behind a lot of trees. There, none of these are unreachable until until dawn, of course. <laughs> then it, finally, a place that shows them how it's done. But again, no one that example has yet to be set, so no one can no one can look to that yet. It does still show, at least at this time, when there's only three dragons, it's sort of a limitation. I was thinking about this when we were thinking about the idea of them taking Casterly Rock. That I said I think they could do it, but it would take a long time to have a lot of casualties. Like if the three dragons were just like on a rotation. Of like just breathing fire into different entrances or whatever, mm. you know. And uh, but while they're doing that, some navy attacks Dragonstone, oh, right? Yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, like, yeah. Like they had to pull away from Erie to go deal with the field of fire. So even while they're t trying to assault Castle Rock with three dragons, and maybe eventually can do it, they're not managing. They're not going after Dorne. They're not managing the North. They're not protecting the, from pirates or all this other stuff. So, mm -hmm. yeah. You know what else? That will be another wrinkle for George to have to have considered the idea of having them have children already. If the Targaryens already had children at this point, those children would have to be protected. Mm, that would yeah. be their like uh, Achilles heel. Achilles whatever, heel yeah. is if someone snoops in and gets a dragonstone and steals their children and holds them hostage. Like, hey, look, you give this conquest up or your children die. Which might be what the the threat that got Aegon to stop going after Dorne, by the way. We'll come back to that when we see Aegon concede his conquest of Dorne. But that's that's ten years away. It could be a dilemma for Danny too, that she only has three dragons. That even if she can take true, them on, true. defeat one area, then the other areas become vulnerable. Yeah. yeah as much as the and Robert Aaron, Ronald Aaron parallel is is maybe only surface level, the Daenerys Aegon parallel is a lot of that. Yes. So that's a strong, deep <laughs> parallel with a lot Neither of. Neither of them having kids, which could be a Achilles' heel. If Danny does it once again, I feel like yeah. that's a long way for the story to go. But I also don't know how George can solve this story in a short period of time. So, <laughs> Yep, yep, yep. Uh, last we heard, Winds of Winter is 
going to be the biggest of the book so far, which makes sense <laughs> for a lot of reasons. But we'll see about that. Our trivia answer for today, the question was, what castle exists with the same name in two places in Westeros? The answer is Oakenshield. There is an Oakenshield, uh, one of the four shield islands, and there is an Oakenshield on the wall. Mm, okay. One of the castles of the wall is called Oakenshield. George R. R. Martin, his fandom of Lord of the Rings, almost certainly the culprit here. Culprit, I use, of course, humorously, because he is a huge fan of Lord of the Rings, and Thorin Oakenshield is one of the luminary big characters of that fandom that series so uh, almost certainly that's the reference there do you know uh, when how early or how far apart those two names came up i wonder what the chances are that george just didn't realize he'd already used it or made a conscious decision to do it again you know? i'm guessing there's a very good chance he didn't realize he duplicated it but yeah he might have just done it for fun done it twice and it's something Probably. easy could happen in a world like oh, yeah. whoever made those castles didn't know someone hundreds of miles away hundreds of years ago made some of the castles the absolutely name. yeah i mean it's a pretty basic name yeah, yeah. <laughs> or didn't care you know yeah yeah, yeah i agree you know almost every state has a fayetteville you know <laughs> <laughs> next week we have our last storm episode with Jim McGeehan. It's already been recorded. Shea is working on the editing this week. It will not be a live stream, but it will be released at the same usual time. It is a patrons only episode. So this is our call to you to join Patreon or our Spotify uh, equivalent, which is a recurring uh, voluntary donation that you pledge through either of those services, either Patreon or spotify you can also send donations through paypal through our website if you do that we will send all our bonus episodes to you i know a couple of you have done that recently and uh, those episodes will be sent to you shortly so that's uh my pitch there we would love to have you on board with our with our patreon we have a lot of bonus episodes so you won't just get this new one but i've lost count now it's over 20 episodes that we have in our bonus catalog and we're going to continue to add to them regularly uh, so sign up now get get on those bonuses and uh, all the other perks that come with being a patron, such as uh, our trivia contest that's coming up on Tuesday. And once a month, we do other games, as I said at the beginning. So sign up, join, have some fun. We mentioned a few episodes today that are relevant to ap episodes we've done before. Uh, things that you could stay immersed with if you're not ready to leave Westeros just yet at the end of this episode. House Valarian and House Celtigar came up a lot today, as did uh, our episode on Dragonstone would be relevant, so as well our episode on Balerion. And since we're going to be talking about the Reach and Old Town pretty soon, you might want to check out our Under the Dragons episodes on House Hightower, which come uh, parallel to some of the events that are being dealt with in the Conquest, at least part of that timeline anyway that's it thanks as well to anyone who showed up today thanks to nina for her great notes that we always use quite a bit of in our episodes check out goodqueenally.tumblr.com for more of her takes on quite a few things a song of ice and fire related thanks to joey jesse and bran and michael clarfeld for their excellent visual and audio uh, additions to our show that's our intro our music our maps those guys are MVPs, as well as our good friend, the Benjineer, 
And I just want to say again how happy I am and how fun it was to have Sean right here. Instead, we got Rita in the studio over here. You can't see her, but she's here. You also can't see Ashea, but you already knew she was here. And uh, We got a reference to W. Riz, Sean. W. Just, Riz? Yeah, I just knew Sean would appreciate the Riz reference. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's it, everyone. We'll see you next time for more Valar Re-Readus.